Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. What's going on, Manila? Uh, you know, weird weekend. Weird weekend? Weird weekend. Explain. Feeling what happened? sick for a day. And oh, then, first, happy Mother's Day. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Happy belated Mother's Day to all you moms out there, especially right. all you single mothers out there. That's right. Because, holy moly, you're doing double duty. God's work. That's true. Ain't that the truth? You watch any good movies this weekend? Movies are your thing? No movies. Um, well, like I said, that was the first movie I'd seen in like two years. So I was clearly going to make a big deal go, out of it. Go to the movies. Let's yeah. be clear. Yes. I'm sure you watched a lot of movies at home. Not really. During, the, during COVID? During COVID. Um, oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure we watched movies in COVID. Yeah, it was just going out somewhere. It was just didn't going to happen. Nobody went out. Yeah. Yeah, no, right. I know, right? It felt like you were just kind of in a bunker for God knows how long. But no, not during I mean, during COVID, I would imagine. I mean, we were basically living in a house for two years. Yes. Just bunkered down for two years. Um, no, the only thing I watched this weekend was Strange New Worlds. So that was the Enterprise thing. It was oh, like Christopher Pike right. and everything else. You were looking forward to that. You have no idea. Were you disappointed? No, it was good. It was good. It okay. was exceptional. Okay. It is exactly what people wanted. Like, because when... All of these Star Trek people wanted a Star Trek. And they said, okay, we're going to give you that Star Trek. And they were like, yes, we're going to get another Star Trek. And they came up with Discovery. And people were like, what the hell is this? What the hell is this? What do you mean Spock is a black one? sister? That was the last one? Yeah. The last series. utterly ridiculous. They gave Spock a black sister. And it's like. Wait, what? You gave, gave one of the most iconic. Spock a black yes, sister. Black American sister. Okay. Who basically got transported to Vulcan and everything. Meaning, this wasn't an original timeline. They gave people Star Trek that wasn't the original timeline and tried to shoehorn a black woman oh. into the role. And people were like, what the hell is, is this? Wait, is this the series where Stacey Abrams is going to yes, appear? Yes, yes, yes. Oh. Yes. It sucks. Sucks. Through and through. Do not waste your time with Discovery. Do not even call it nonsense Star Trek. It is horrendous. It is trash. And um, was my, that Stacey Abrams's acting debut? Oh, I have no idea. I don't even rem- remember her. That's how little I regard Star Trek Disco. I don't even call it Star Trek. I call it Disco. I it's see. bad. It's bad. That's it's horrendous. That's what I had heard, too. And that's... But, you know, I wasn't sure if they were criticizing because it was Stacey Abrams. No. Or because it, it was bad. It was bad. Oh, okay. It was bad. And if it's coming from you, I will take that. I am a huge Star Trek fan. So if it's coming from me... I mean, that season four wasn't horrendous. Season four wasn't horrendous. But the problem with Discovery is, A, the wokeified. So oh, you've taken oh. a series that was already had, um, you know, the first kiss between a white man and a black woman, the um, oh, lesbians. Right. You had all that Kirk. stuff. Yeah, Kirk. Captain Kirk. Right. Captain Kirk. Just oh, in Aurora. Wow. Yeah. He was forced to do it because during that time, it was like, oh, we can't, we can't just have this white man kissing this black woman. It was like very that. provocative. It was. Back then. People were like, oh, my God, that black Biracial man white woman. How dare? I can't believe they're doing this. So, yeah, it was that. But no. And then what they do, though, is because Burnham wasn't a captain, she was like a commander. She attacks the captain within the first five minutes of the series. Physically? Physically attacks the captain within the first five minutes of the series. And... The show defers to her like, we should have just listened to the black woman all along. 
and that's the entire first series, first two series, because it has to be that way. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Meaning, if you're Star Trek, you're following a captain. You're following a captain because the captain has the ability to command right. and make decisions. Well, what about a commander? She, she overthrew him. She overthrew the captain. Yeah, she attacked the captain, started a war within the first five minutes of the entire series. Literally did that. And so I'm looking at that like, oh, get the f out of here. That's just not how it works. That is not how that works. On the Starship Command. No, no. And then even she, I know that, and I'm not a Trekkie. You don't even watch Star Trek, and you know that. And I know that. It blows off orders, blows off rules, gallivanting around the galaxy. The captain says, go do this, and she does the opposite. And for the first two seasons, that's what happened. And so it's like... And then shoehorn Stacey Abrams. Yeah, yeah, shoot. Let's add Stacey Abrams into this for <laughs> some God, God knows reason. Now, they did that with Cisco in Deep Space Nine, but Cisco was in command, even though he was a commander. He becomes captain in, what, third season or something like that. But the entire time, he's running the space station. So he has control and command. Putting this woman in command, she's not even in command. There's a captain above her, and yet she seems to continuously blow off what the captain tells her. I'll, I'll tell you with the Stacey Abrams thing, yeah. I, I do believe that was a political move. What, you think to get more publicity Absolutely. for Abrams? I mean, she couldn't win in her own home state, but now governor, they're, yeah. they're trying to make her this a national figure. Yeah. I mean, she already is, but that's to politicos. Yeah. But now they're trying to make her, you know, as, as we'll say normalized to the public in, in different mediums, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, look, here she is as oh, an actor. Oh, they're trying to take her out of her sandbox. Right, here, here she is as an actor. Like, isn't she wonderful? Because as we know, actors can become... TV stars can yes. become president, governor. They, I mean, Reagan. Look at Trump, yeah. reality star. So they're trying to give her more exposure. Yeah. So that was pretty deliberate. That was the way they tried to do it, basically. I think so. uh, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't. I, I can't say you're wrong on that. I mean, the Hillary Clinton one going on Jimmy Kimmel, where behind the scenes they were telling her, "Ask the UFO question. Ask the UFO question. Ask the UFO question." And then he asked her. And she answers on her staff is like, yeah, she nailed it. She nailed it. Right. Meaning the entire time they wanted that question to be answered or asked as she was running for president. Or like when she appeared on SNL. Or that. That's the whole thing is you want to normalize that person to the general mainstream public. So so people that aren't necessarily voters or people that don't necessarily pay attention to politics, you put them on mainstream media some way or another. They feel like regular people. Right. They're just like, oh, there's, oh, look, there's Stacey Abrams. Oh, there's Hillary Clinton. And look, sometimes this goes bad. Beto in the dentist's office, like with him, oh, and his, teeth, his mouth God. wide open, and they have the dental thing. It's Nobody like, oh, this is so that. gross. Why are you doing this? Nobody wants that. Nobody That's wants the thing. to see it's that. It's like, who is your PR guy, Beto? <laughs> right, who right. told you that was a good idea? I think he saw AOC, and he was like, wow, she's like cooking and dancing, and people teeth. love her. Right. All that. that. She got so good he's teeth. like, maybe the way to do that is I'll do a video like that. I'll do a selfie in the dentist's office. With my mouth stretched. Backfired. Yeah, yeah. Like, look, I'm a normal person, too, who's <laughs> married to a very wealthy Texan whose dad is knocking down whole villages of old Chicano neighborhoods. Yes. Put that aside. Look at my teeth. Look at my teeth. I got fantastic teeth. Did you see this one thing before we get to headlines? Um, I just turned on my um, my Twitter well, turned it on, the Twitter. And as a CNN defends protesting outside of Justice's home, for a lot of people, conversation about civility feels like missed mark. We now, talked this, about that. Right. We talked this was when Saki said something about basically like, hey, man. Be peaceful. Just be peaceful if you want to show up at people's house. And apparently they're talking about it on CNN. 
And he's basically, it says protests erupt outside private homes of Kavanaugh and Roberts. So apparently these protests are hitting Roberts, who, by the way, for the longest time, protected Roe v. Wade. Just want to point that out. Even though he's a conservative justice, he protected Roe v. Wade. Um, and Kavanaugh, is it right? No, it's still, I still stand by what I said Friday. And that is Jen Psaki should have condemned the doxing of private residences, especially yeah. of, of extremely high-profile figures like the justices of SCOTUS. Right. I mean, on top of it, these are much older people who are not going to react the, the same way as someone like a young celebrity, yeah. let's say. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think, I mean, doxing is no different than stalking to me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the same thing. If you're going to show it's a up— it's worse. It, Only because you have rent, like, I don't know if the stalker is crazy, but if you put out a thousand people, the higher, right. there's a higher percentage that yes. one of those people are nuts. Right. Yeah. Or, or like if you're, I don't know why you would be, but if you're a Robert Pattinson fan um, and you want to find out where he lives in Beverly Hills or something, right? Like maybe you think you're supposed to, your, your stars aligned and you're supposed to be his lover forever and you, you know, break into his house and you, you're butt naked on his bed. I mean, she could, she or he, I, she, I'm not going to discriminate. She or he could be, you know, crazy yeah. in the fact that, number one, you show up at their house and you're convinced that you're supposed to be lovers or married or whatever. And who knows? Maybe you have a gun. Maybe you have a knife. Who's to say the same thing won't happen with these people? With the justices. Protesting. I get protesting. But, yeah. But when it goes to private residencies, it's feels creepier. It's yeah, it's I think it's just creepy all the way around doxing, stalking, same same to me. I mean, I generally agree with you. I would say maybe 80%. To me, it's not an absolute, but for this, this seems too far. They didn't do anything wrong in the wrong sense of the word. Meaning, it's not like Bush saying we're going to have a war of aggression that is clearly against our laws. This is a Supreme Court that look, you knew what they were going to do the moment that they got in office. Meaning this is not beyond the bounds of their power. This is not them doing an overreach. You may dislike the ruling. Right. You may get the majority of the country disliking the ruling. Right. But by the same token, is the Supreme Court the forum to make law? And are they wrong for saying, yeah, we're not going to, we're going to scuttle this. It is up for the states and the country to make those laws, or at the very least, a federal law right. against abortion. Be very mad at your Democrats if you're going to stalk anybody, stalk them, because they right. allowed that to basically fail. But the Supreme Court is not doing right. anything beyond their power here. That is an important thing to note, Jamal, is that these these SCOTUSes, these SCOTUS justices aren't saying, let's get rid of abortion altogether. Right. Let's like close down all these facilities. That's not what they're saying. They're kicking it back down to the state level. Or the federal government. The federal government is keeping, basically they're they're speaking on behalf of the feds and saying, like, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. Like we're not ruling on this, kicking it down to the state level. That's up to you at your local state level to decide for your own, I would say countrymen, I guess states men, <laughs> what is best for your people in your state, right? Right, And they're just kicking it down to the state level. And that is how this particular democracy works, right? Is that we have the federal and the state level. And this is all that SCOTUS has done. You don't have to like it. You don't have to disagree with it. But why aren't you protesting, you know, outside the, the, the Rayburn building or, you know, people, people don't know that, but let's, the offices at Capitol Hill yes. for the Democrat Party that has had this ball in their court. 1973. Forever. And keep in mind, Democrats ran the House of Representatives for 50 years, with the exception of twice. Right. Up until the point for the, Clinton. The bulk of the time. Yeah. They owned it. It has been the Democrat Party 
law to codify, but they chose not to do it. So now you're going to take it out on SCOTUS. these senior citizens doing their thing, and but you knew, you yeah. knew. It's yeah. I, 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 this is one of those things I'm not for. I don't like Personally, them doing this. Yeah. I, I condemn Jen Psaki. Shame on her. How would she feel if people were demonstrating outside of her own house where she's at home with her little kindergartner kid and people demonstrating against her? She wouldn't like that at all. She would condemn that. And she would ask for people to condemn that. So I, I say shame on Jen Psaki for not condemning that because you're really just adding fuel to the fire and adding to this greater political divide we already have. This is not the time to make people more angry. And uh, people are on the edge. People have lost jobs. We're in a terrible economy. People have just come out of two years of lockdown. This is not the time to add row on top of that and go, yeah, if you're fine, if you're going to go to these old people's houses, just be polite, okay? Just be nice. Just be nice. Respectful of their neighbors, okay? I'm pretty sure she would say, we got to pay for our values. So, and because these are my values, I accept these people protesting with me right. and my kid, which is not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Like, see how she likes that. All right, let's 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 stop jib-jabbing and head over to headlines. Uh, national news. Republican House lawmaker James Comer, not Comey, James Comer, has announced plans to launch a probe into the scandals surrounding Hunter Biden in order to determine whether or not his father, you know, Joe Biden, knew about his reportedly shady schemes. Comer looks to get to the bottom of the matter if Republicans win back control of the House, and he becomes the head of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. Preliminary polls currently place the GOP in position to seize control over the House in November's midterms. Biden's approval ratings have dropped recently due to raging inflation and other issues. I think you're all aware of that. Then a new poll conducted by CBS News and YouGov shows that 58% of U.S. adults favor keeping abortion legal. This poll was conducted just days after that leak revealed the U.S. Supreme Court was mulling the possibility of overturning Roe. International News Russian ambassador to Poland, Sergei Andreev, was attacked and doused with red paint while trying to lay a wreath at a cemetery of Soviet soldiers in Warsaw, Poland. That's according to a Sputnik correspondent. Andreev arrived at the memorial cemetery of Soviet soldiers at the Polish capital, accompanied by diplomats and his wife. However, people who had gathered there in advance blocked his path, shouting insults and slogans at him, then began to pour some sort of red substance on the ambassador and the people around him. So the ambassador could not lay that wreath at the cemetery. He left the place, accompanied by local police, after this attack. Then the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, has proposed seizing frozen Russian foreign exchange reserves and using them to cover the costs of rebuilding Ukraine once the military conflict is over. He believes the previous experience in Afghanistan serves as a template for such a measure. In an interview with, with FT, which is, uh, what is that, foreign, FT is, FT. Oh, Financial Times. Financial Times, excuse yeah. me, yes. Couldn't, had a Monday morning brain yeah. <laughs> It happened. In the interview with Financial Times, published on Monday, Borrell said, 
that in February, U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order to help enable certain U.S.-based assets belonging to Afghanistan Central Bank, the Afghanistan Bank, to be used to benefit the Afghan people. In Burrell's opinion, it is full of logic, he says. Logic. It's still $9 billion with people starving on the streets. <laughs> That's logic. To Russia's assets for similar purposes. Tech News, head of the Russian Roscosmos State Corporation, Dmitry, Dmitry Rogozin, has warned SpaceX CEO Elon Musk, future owner of Twitter, that he will be held accountable eventually for allegedly supplying Starlink internet terminals to the Ukrainian military. Rogozin said that according to the Russian intelligence obtained from a captured commander of the 36th Ukrainian Marine Brigade, the U.S. Pentagon delivered the Starlink terminals directly to Ukraine's armed forces. It was later distributed to the troops in Mariupol, including the fighters in the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Quote, Elon Musk is thus involved in supplying the fascist forces in Ukraine with military communications. For that, Elon, you will be held accountable no matter how hard you play the fool. Rogozin wrote this in his Telegram channel. Ouch. And in Earth Science News, scientists from the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Cambridge have discovered that certain kinds of stress, like high body temperature, can actually reverse the abnormal buildup of proteins in the brain that is usually found in patients with dementia, according to the study published in Nature Communications. This phenomenon cites earlier research, which showed that people who frequented saunas in Finland Maybe it's something special about the Finnish saunas, but tomorrow, maybe you've been there. <laughs> the saunas in Finland, they were less likely to experience dementia. Scientists have warned that the study, funded in part by the Alzheimer's Society, is in the early stages. Heat shock, which affects abnormal protein aggregations, can also cause brain cell killing stress, the study says. So research now looking for ways to provide to provoke a, a similar reaction in the brain without the harmful consequences. So interesting, because you know Finland is spot culture. Like yeah, I used, like saying. I told you, they used to have that stuff hooked to their doors. I mean, hooked to their houses and everything else. Like pretty much the way That's I was fancy. told. Yeah. Well, they just consider it part of the cultural thing. Oh, At I least love, the I people that explained no, I like it. Steam rooms actually. I like the steam. The benefits of the of steam for your pores and yeah. your, your skin, as well as like the deep breathing. And as a kid that had had asthma, mm-hmm. helped helped greatly. Steam yeah. rooms are great. So interesting. Yeah, but this. Yeah, I mean something about the heat. But maybe that's why old people go retire in Florida and Arizona. Yeah, the warm weather. It's right. just easier. The dry, well, at least it's, in Arizona, it's dry. Heat, and who wants like to deal with that freezing, like, snow and cold? The older you get, that stuff gets harder Hurts to do. Hurts on your bones, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. But see, maybe this is why all those snowbirds flock down instinctively. Yeah. You didn't need research. <laughs> you didn't need research. All that When I lived in Arizona, there was, there was the seasonal snowbirds that came down from Canada. Wow. They would make, I mean, they're retirees, right? So they would... Make, make their, their trek yeah. all the way through the states, all the way down to Arizona to their their winter homes for like six months. Yeah. And it's just full of these like uh, mostly Canadian snowbirds. Like but it was like weather. instinctively, it's dry, very hot, and it acts kind of like a sauna. I mean, you can cook an egg on the sidewalk in Arizona, let me tell you, in the summer. Um, in the winter, 
you know, it's maybe a hundred. <laughs> in the winter, <laughs> maybe a hundred. Maybe, maybe hundred <laughs> right. instead of a hundred twenty. So, you know, that's why the people flock down there. Maybe it was instinctive. I mean, birds flock south for a reason. I think they just want to be warm. They, well, yeah, but this is, but maybe there's something driving deep down. I, I do believe in, like, we, we've talked about kids that ate sand and dirt when, yeah. you know, when we were little. Something their body needs. Something your body needs. And maybe there's something to that. And this is why people use saunas. Those is possible. Possibly. Got to do more research. And then this day in history, way back in 1386, the Treaty of Windsor between Portugal and England, the oldest diplomatic alliance in the world, uh, was put in place. It is still in force today. Go figure. 1865, President Andrew Johnson issues a proclamation declaring armed resistance in the South is virtually at an end. This is the commonly accepted end date of the American Civil War. Then in 1901, the first Australian parliament opens over in Melbourne. 1941, British intelligence at Bletchley Park breaks German spy codes after capturing Enigma machines aboard the weathership Munchen. In 1945, World War II, the Soviet Union marks its victory day. In 1960, the U.S. becomes the first country to legalize birth control pills. In 2018, the historic win in Malaysian general elections by opposition coalition Pakatan Harapan, led by 92-year-old former Prime Minister Dr. Mahathir bin Mohammed, defeating Prime Minister Najib Razak and ending 61 years of rule by the Barisan Nacional Coalition. And that is going to do it for your headlines this Monday, May 9th. You are listening to Fault Lines with Jamaral Thomas and Manila Chan. Use my full name. Oh, use your own full name. Yeah. Both, both <laughs> I was like, names. wait a minute, what just happened? Uh, but uh, let's go get to the uh, monologue. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. We are going to get into a conversation with Scott Ritter, who's coming up at 730, about what it seems to be that the U.S. is getting spooked by its own propaganda with Biden coming out basically saying, stop releasing all of that information, even though... The NBC News report basically said that the Biden administration was the one that decided to release um, nonsense stories and other propaganda and other classified information, regardless of the levels of that classification, meaning whether it is a low um, likelihood of being true or whether it is above. It's basically being used for propagandistic purposes. What's more interesting to me, well, that story is extremely interesting, but I want to get Scott's take on it, is what took place over the weekend regarding the Azostal steel plant. Well, the Ukrainian military has come out and basically said all of the survivors are out or all of the evacuees, civilians, are out. Okay, great. Now, I will ask the question again that I asked in the beginning. 
And we get somewhat of an answer for this based on one of the evacuees that is coming out and basically gave a report that the German media or Western media didn't necessarily like. And so they basically deleted and removed her report, her commentary about what she experienced over the last several months. The Russians wanted to create a land bridge to the Crimea, and Maripol was basically the location where that was needed to be done. So taking Maripol was one of the key objectives. That took place. They were able to take it. So while the West was saying, hey, look at the way Ukraine is holding the line and Russia is losing its mission and Russia is not accomplishing objectives and they're running out of missiles and blah, 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 blah. Maripol falls. In the middle of all that stuff, Maripol falls. Now, no, they don't necessarily have a good explanation for this. The only thing they come out with is all of these civilians are being held there. And again, my question was, why are there civilians at all in Maripol or at the Azovstal steel plant? The steel plant has basically a Soviet-era fortified steel plant where the Azov Battalion, basically neo-Nazis, um, homequartered. Under the steel plant is basically these catacombs where the people were basically staying in order to deal with the bombardments and everything else. This is the place where they were putting their quote-unquote last stand. Okay, great. It's one thing for the soldiers to be there. Why are there civilians there? Now, Russia opened up multiple times saying, you have quarters, you can leave. They did this over and over and over again. And under no circumstances were any of the soldiers leaving, nor were they letting out the civilians that were basically there. And me, why? That's weird. Why wouldn't those civilians leave? If those civilians had agency and those civilians had choice, why would those civilians decide to stay in an area where they were completely surrounded, they were basically entombed in catacombs, they weren't going to get food. They weren't going to get water. There was no potential for the Ukrainian military to even reach them. And more importantly, it served no military objective, meaning this wasn't a situation where these guys were there, no ammunition, and holding up the Russian military. It wasn't that. Russia had already started to redeploy. Why are you there? Why are you allowing that level of manpower to basically get annihilated? Why? And more importantly, even if you're going to let your military get annihilated, why are you letting civilians get annihilated? Why don't civilians leave? Well, we get our answer. Now, this comes out of right here. This woman's name is Natalia Usmanova. Natalia Usmanova. This is her comment. On Monday, Der Spiegel published a three-minute video of the evacuation of civilians from Azostal steel plant in Murapal. In it, Natalia Usmanova, who was employed in the plant before the Ukrainian war, had sought protection there with her children and her husband had to say, quote, I mean, the Azov regiment repeatedly prevented her evacuation in two horrible months, she explained in Spriegel's video. Quote, we tried to flee, knew about the humanitarian quarters, about the evacuation, but were not let out, unquote. On Wednesday, also a longer video from which the interview excerpts were taken, quote, they kept us in the bunker. She said, um, even more clearly, quote, they hid behind the fact that they were supposedly concerned about our safety, unquote. They were repeatedly shouted at, go back to the bunker. After the evacuation, the family decided not to return to Ukraine. Quote, Ukraine is dead for me as a state, unquote. Der Spiegel, what was their response to this commentary? Der Spiegel's response was to take down the video. Yes, they kept her picture up, but they took down the video because of, quote, discrepancies in content that were subsequently discovered, unquote. If you go to Der Spiegel's site where this video was supposed to be linked, now Der Spiegel got this from Reuters, by the way. 
discrepancies in content. What sort of discrepancies in content is it that that is not fulfilling the narrative that you're going with? And it sounds like the Ukrainian military were using these people as human shields. Now, understand the rationale here. It makes all the sense in the world, even though people may think it's impolite. It is a practical reality of war, especially where there's an imbalance of force between two sides. You want to get the propagandistic effect of being able to say, look how much of barbarians our opponent and enemies are as they kill civilians. Missing the point that you're putting weapon systems in civilian areas and you're preventing those civilians from basically leaving. And so in this very specific case, when people talk about human shields, what is this? You're being bombarded constantly. There's no chance of escape. There's no chance of getting support to you. You're running out of food and water. You should read the reports and see the Facebook reports that were basically coming out for the people who are in there. It is a desperate situation. And when humanitarian corridors were open, they were disallowed to leave. So when people make this note about human shields and whatnot, this is the stuff that they were talking about. This case is utterly atrocious. And the way this woman is basically describing events that they had to live through is horrible. So why the change? Is it possible that when Putin comes out, he says, well, fine, seal it up. We're not going to raid it. We're not going to lose and waste Russian lives going into catacombs in order to get these people out. Seal it up. Either they're going to disintegrate at the point where they run out of food and water, which apparently they seem to be on the brink of doing anyway, or they're going to come out with their hands up, one or the other. Why make the change? And my contention is the reason they made that change is because they accepted that the Russian troops weren't going to storm it. So in order to last as long as they possibly can last. Let the civilians go. It's either that or starve the civilians, right? Let the civilians go. You allow more provisions for the various people there, and the entire point of announcing that there were civilians there was in hopes that the Russian military wouldn't necessarily storm that particular facility with the idea that those civilians may get killed in the process, and once again, they could use the telegenically Dead civilians to say, look at the bad Russians and what they were doing. We told them there were civilians here. Meaning the point of the civilians is a cost for any sort of military operation that is going to go and kill your own troops. At the point where it became clear that they weren't going to raid the facility, then at that point it's how do we extend the amount of resources that we have so we can stay here that much longer? No, there's no point to being here. But we're going to stay here nonetheless. It seems that the reason there were civilians there is because the Iranian military wouldn't let them leave. Talk about immoral. Talk about disgusting. I even think it's immoral and disgusting that Kiev would let its own soldiers, its own men, go to waste in a conflict in this very specific situation at the steel plant that has zero purpose. There's no military purpose for it at all. The only purpose can be propagandistic. And is that really worth all of these people's lives? My point here is it seems like this family member is explaining the reason that the civilians didn't come out. They weren't allowed to. Manila, when, let's do this. Let's get your comment when we come back at eight because we have to, um, we're going to have our guest Scott Ritter with us. Um, but I've asked this question many a times and I've asked this question many times over the course of the last several weeks. Why are the civilians there? What is the point? We got an answer. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to get to our guest, the one and only Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter is a former U.N. weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. Scott, how you doing this morning? You doing all right? I'm doing great, thanks. Yourself? So far, so good. Better that you are with us. 
One of the weirdest reports that came out, and I thought to myself, okay, I need to figure out what Scott is going to say about this because I want his take on it. For the longest time, this came out in NBC News. This was several weeks ago that basically owned up to the fact that the U.S. media or that Biden has been lying fantastically about this war. But the interesting part in this is right here. Uh, right here. And one of a string of examples of the Biden administration's breaking with recent precedent by deploying declassified intelligence as part of an information war against Russia. The administration has done so even when intelligence wasn't rock solid, officials said, to keep Russia president off balance. This is nonsense. Coordinated by the White House National Security Council, the unprecedented, unprecedented intelligence releases have done so frequently and voluminous, officials said, that intelligent agencies had to devote more staff to work on a declassification process. Now, all of this culminates into basic reports coming out in Western media. U.S. intelligence helps kill 12 Russians. U.S. intelligence helps sink to Moscow. U.S. intelligence helps destroy a Russian transport that ends up killing hundreds of Russians. Now, Kirby comes out and is like, oh, wait, 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 that's not true. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. We didn't share that intelligence for them to kill those people in that way. Biden comes out and says, Biden told official media reports about U.S. intelligence sharing with Ukraine is counterproductive. And basically said, look, I appreciate you guys releasing this information, but stop. It's not helping. Now, this comes across as schizophrenic to me. It seems that the White House on some level was driving this, and now they get freaked out on some level and pull back. What is going on with the schizophrenic policy? What was the thing that freaked them out? Didn't they know in advance that it is somewhat dicey for the U.S. government to say, we are helping kill Russian generals and Russian troops and the chest dump at in the media, didn't they know whether that was true or false that that was somewhat dicey politically? What's going on, Scott? Well, there, there's a, not you, but the, this is conflating two different um, intelligence activities. One is a propaganda effort, uh, which is the deliberate, what they call declassification of, um, of, of intelligence that they know um, may not be accurate, but which, if released as the official stamp of the U.S. Uh, government on it, um, can help shape perception. They claim that it's to, to, to influence Vladimir Putin, but I can pretty much guarantee you that the last source of influence to the Russian president is the American media. Um, it's more about shaping perception here at home uh, to um, buy into the Western narrative of, um, you know, Ukrainian victory, Russian defeat, things of that nature. So that's, that's one aspect of it. Um, the other one is the real world that we live in. Um, that it's not about perception management. It's about increasing the lethality of the Ukrainian armed forces. This is where the United States and NATO have been using their considerable intelligence collection capabilities to collect information about Russian military dispositions um, and, and, and intentions, and then to feed this information in uh, as near real time as possible to the Ukrainians so that they can act on it. Um, I can tell you as an intelligence professional who has been to war and, and knows exactly how intelligence information can tip uh, the, 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 you know, tip the battle in your favor, um, solid information, um, in a timely fashion <clears throat> that um, allows you to anticipate uh, enemy movement or to shape your response to their movement can be decisive. And <clears throat> even though the Ukrainians are being defeated piecemeal on the battlefield, when you hand them a piece of information, 
for instance, uh, the specific location of a uh, Russian warship, combined with very critical information such as <clears throat> what is the radar um, protective coverage of this ship? Are there other ships out there supporting? Is there a seam in the radar uh, that that can be exploited by a um, by a, a, a ground launch missile if it flies at a certain profile? If you wanted to, for instance, launch a helicopter attack against a Russian um, fuel depot inside Russian territory, <clears throat> what is the seam in the Russian air defense coverage that allows the helicopters to fly nap of the earth to penetrate that? This is what we use to uh, exploit uh, the enemy. When we plan air attacks or we plan missile attacks, we incorporate all this data. Ukraine does not have the ability to collect this data and assess this data and create <coughs> strike packages based upon this data. The U.S. does. So the U.S. is providing Ukraine with strike packages. That is, we know what weapon systems they have. We know their capabilities. We're giving them basically the battle map that says, here, if you want to kill this, if you want to accomplish this, this is the plan, and all you have to do is, is execute it. And, um, and this has been with lethal effect. We have um, <coughs> allowed them to, I believe, sink a ship. We've allowed them to blow up um, a fuel depot inside Russia. We've allowed them to kill Russian general officers. And this is supposed to be top secret. This is because this is an act of war. I mean, literally, this puts the, this makes the United States a combatant. Remember, we assassinated Sim Soleimani, an Iranian uh, general whom we accused of doing the exact same thing to us. And you remember the outrage of the American people? 600 dead Americans. My God, this man's got to go. Well, guess what, America? We are Qasem Soleimani, and the Russians are now us. Uh, it's the same thing. And this is what scares the president. Because when you sink a flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, and the only reason why it got sunk is because the United States provided the intelligence information that enabled the Ukrainians to do it. Uh, the Russians aren't going to sit there and say, yeah, okay, we'll just take that one on the chin. Um, you know, this is an act of war, and this is what's got the president scared, because Russia is building up a significant case of retaliation. And the last thing Joe Biden wants is for the United States to be dragged into this war. Now, Scott, there's another thing that we should bring up in the way of, you know, I don't know if it's technically providing material support to the Ukrainians, but in the way of Elon Musk supplying Starlink uh, communication systems to apparently some Ukrainian uh, generals, and that was apparently delivered by the U.S. on by the by way of the Pentagon. Um, that's according to at least Dmitry Rogozin, the the boss of Roscosmos uh, in Russia. Now. I don't know, does, I mean, as a military professional, does that qualify Elon Musk as, as, as providing material support? Because now he's tweeting some pretty cryptic, weird things like, you know, like he didn't Epstein himself, you know, stuff like that saying, it, he's almost implying like somebody's out to get him. Are the two related? Well, I mean, I read Rogozin's thing and I actually ran it by my wife who was a, a native Russian speaker, because the Russian language is rich with nuance, hidden meaning, and it's all linked to, you know, folk sayings, etc. And basically, you know, Musk has taken the, um, the, you know, you, you will be 
you know, treat, treat it like an adult thing to mean, oh my God, they're coming after me. No, it's just basically, you know, you can't pretend to be a child your whole life. Eventually you have to be held accountable as an adult. Um, I believe the Russians are building um, a, a very legal case. The, the, the Russian officer in question was the head of the 36th Marine Brigade, um, who was, you know, central in the battle for Mariupol. Mariupol is also the headquarters of the Azov Regiment um, and, and the Nazi movement uh, that was used to violently attack uh, Russian speakers, not only in the in the cleansing of Mariupol in 2014, but the uh, ongoing assault on Russian speakers in Donbass. Uh, and the Russians are building a criminal case against Azov. Uh, not, this isn't war crimes. These are criminals. They don't treat them as soldiers. They treat them as criminals. And they're building a very active case. And um, Elon Musk's provision of um, communications equipment, this Starlink equipment, uh, to uh, the Azov Regiment, um, I believe the Russians view this as uh, you know contributing to the case, and that he can be held uh, you know criminally liable. And uh, I believe that's what the Russians are talking about. They're not talking about killing Elon Musk. They don't care about Elon Musk in that way. But they, what they are saying is. You know, you, you can't just willy-nilly go around and do things like a child and, and be expected to be treated as a child. Um, you know, when you when you do things in the adult world, you'll be treated as an adult. And um, and that's what they're saying. I mean, Musk, you know, he's, he's just a strange guy. I did a native native Russian speaker um, to, uh, to 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 better inform him what uh, Rogozin was saying. Yeah, there certainly is a lot of nuance in that language, which makes it incredibly hard for people to, unless you're a native speaker, it's really hard to actually understand them. I want to touch on one more thing, Scott, because you talked about um, the media. And one thing that's interesting to note on this Victory Day is that RFE, Radio Free Europe, is still broadcasting all over Europe, including Ukraine and Russia and all the former uh, Soviet states, RFE is still allowed to broadcast. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., you cannot find Russia anything. You can't even, not even the telegram, by the way, if you're looking at apps, you can't even find, you can't even go to the websites. Um, What kind of hypocrisy are we looking at now where we're criticizing the Russians of being one certain way and, oh, they don't have a free press and blah, blah, blah. But yet Radio Free Europe, which was an advent of the American CIA during the Cold War, is still allowed to broadcast and has never been interrupted in its, you know, 65, 70-year inception. What's interesting is the evolution of um, of free speech, we'll call it, um, since special military operation began on February 24th, um, when it when it started, the Russians were very um, uh, defensive, uh, as you would be when you when you initiate a very you know, bold um, and risky operation. Uh, you want to control information, and we do the same thing. I mean, please go back to the start of any ma- major American um, operation and look at how we control information and how we shape information. Etc. The Russians have evolved. Uh, today in Russia, there is total information availability of what's going on in, in Ukraine. Total information availability. I'll say that one more time. Total information availability. Russia is not afraid of what's going on in Ukraine. Russia is being honest and open about what's going on in Ukraine. The average Russian citizen has full access 
to you know anything that's not classified about Russian military operations in Ukraine. They know exactly what's going on in Kherson. They're more informed than we are here in the United States because we've taken the opposite approach. We started with this, you know, we're, we're, we're going to tell you everything. We're, of course, we weren't. We're just taking the Ukrainian side. But now we've even flittered it down even worse because the Ukrainians can't even tell the truth about what's going on to their own people. How many people know that there are active demonstrations right now in Kiev and Lvov in the Carpathian region by the mothers, wives, and daughters of, uh, of, of Ukrainian troops that have been recently mobilized, uh, saying, no, we don't want to die in the East. We don't want to die in your war. How many, how many people know about this? No one. Do we know that the, the recently mobilized brigade that was sent uh, from, the, from Western Ukraine to the East uh, got on the front line and immediately people started deserting, so they had to break the brigade up into packets and farm it out to different units with soldiers guarding them to make sure they don't run away because they don't want to be there? Do they know what the casualty rate is? Do they know that the Ukrainians are suffering a battalion's worth of dead, wounded, and prisoners a day? A battalion's worth every single day. Ukrainians don't know this because they're being lied to, because they have to, because the truth would hurt. In this case, Russia doesn't care. RFE, broadcast away anything you want to. Russia's not afraid. The truth is on Russia's side. The truth is ugly. The truth hurts. But Russia's not afraid of the truth. And notice Putin's speech. Everybody's expecting him to play, you know, some sort of game. You know, uh, come out for propaganda. He gave a, a cold, reasoned speech. There's no gamesmanship here. He's not overselling. He's not underselling. It's just these are the facts. This is what's going on. This is why I did what I did. This is why we're doing what we're doing. He's not trying to oversell it, undersell it. It's just there because Russia deals in the world of reality today, whereas the United States and Ukraine and Europe, they're off in fantasy land, la-la land, trying to you know, shape perception instead of embracing reality. So I, I don't think the Russians you know, care about this, uh, about RFE. They're not afraid of it. They, they, they're not concerned about it. At some point in time, maybe they'd shut it down. But, you know, remember, when you start suppressing press, you, people have to ask questions. Why? Why are you suppressing it? Now, if they were suppressing RFE because they were concerned about the, 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 the information, et cetera, well, people say, well, then why are you concerned? I think it does more, Russia more harm than good to shut down something that, frankly, doesn't matter, doesn't factor in. It's a non-issue. Do you want to have the ultimate um, definition of uh, irrelevance? Be RFE and broadcast and find out Russia doesn't care. Um, Scott, I want to get to – I want to go back to the other um, thing on this kind of releasing of information. Is the concern that there are other U.S. service members, meaning maybe two concerns, one – there's a problem associated with this idea of a proxy war. I don't know why there would be a problem, given that we're putting in $30 billion and everything else. But it's the issue that you have other U.S. service members in other theaters of war. And those U.S. service members are potentially vulnerable, especially to information or if intelligence were given on the situations through which they found themselves. Is that where a lot of this is also coming from, where it seems that the Biden administration is saying, hey, stop doing that openly? Well, I mean, the first thing is um – you know, Biden wants to be in control of of shaping perception um, that, you know, that's that's his whole gig is 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 shaping what people think. 
So when you have people leaking information that's not being controlled by the White House, you're no longer in control of the narrative. So the, <laughs> right off the bat, this is about power and, uh, and, and, and who's in charge. Uh, that's the most important factor here. Um, the, the, the second one is the Pentagon um, is, is very much worried about vulnerabilities um, and potential for blowback. Um, and, and I'm not worried about U.S. troops deployed elsewhere. I just don't think the Russians are going to go and blow up, uh, you know, you know, an American outpost in Timbuktu. Um, what 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 I would be worried about is um, is the next time an American destroyer enters the Black Sea and starts conducting intelligence um, for the Russians to say that intelligence represents an existential threat, given the, the relationship you have, and, and they're going to sink the ship. And the, and the Americans know this is going to happen. It's going to happen if we if we're not. I mean, if we don't resolve this thing, if we try to sail a ship in the Black Sea um, in an intelligence collection profile, that that ship will be sunk. And we have to be careful now about our aircraft. If our aircraft get too close now, um, and they're collecting intelligence, they will be shot down um, if they're flying over the Black Sea, because we've now crossed the line. We've allowed intelligence to become weaponized. Uh, we are now directly um, involved in the deaths of uh, Russian, you know, not just generals, but servicemen. And again, remember how outraged the Pentagon was about losing 600 guys to Qasem Soleimani. Imagine how outraged the Russians are for losing more than that uh, to the Americans. Um, you know, it's a two, it's a, it's double-edged sword. Uh, it doesn't just cut our way, it cuts against us. And this is what the Pentagon's really worried because we have crossed a, a, a red line. We've entered very dangerous territory, and um, the Pentagon is very nervous about this. One more thing. Could you hit on the current military strategy that is basically being employed by Russia here? So in going through reports, it seems that artillery is basically being used to ground down the Ukrainian military, which has cut down on the number of losses that Russia is encountering, but increasing the losses that Ukrainian military is basically taking on. And this also includes precision-guided weapons hitting various let's say, infrastructure in order to prevent weapon systems getting from, let's say, all the NATO nations into the theater of war or to the battlefield. What is basically the strategy here? And for that matter, from the standpoint of Ukraine, what is their end game? I mean, these guys are still saying they're pushing for victory. <laughs> they're still pushing for victory despite the losses and everything else. You basically have people who hasn't even finished their training um, leading what seems to be old men, at least based on the reports and the videos that I've been seeing out of this. What is the Russian strategy going forward, and what is the end game from the standpoint of Ukraine, for that matter, the Western nation? Well, the Russian strategy is to cut off the forty to sixty thousand Ukrainian troops that are currently in the Donbas. One thing that's not coming out on the press is um, just how fortified the Ukrainian positions are. They've had eight years, and if you take a look at some of the videos of the captured positions, we're talking about you know uh, reinforced concrete bunkers. Um, extensive trench systems, re, um, you know, supporting positions. So as you invest on one area, you're getting fired at by five different positions, all of which are reinforced. The Russians have to take these defenses down, you know, deliberately. And um, as somebody who's been involved in bunker assault uh, preparation, it, it's it's tough. It's tough fighting, um, and they want to do it in a way that minimizes their casualties. I mean. You know, you, this could go a lot quicker if you're willing to take the, the take the losses. The Russians aren't willing to take the losses at this point, and they're still taking some losses. But they're, you know, they're 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 gradually just blowing this things up. They have achieved two major breakthroughs: one in the north, one in the south, through these um, these defensive belts. 
Um, and they're in, in the South, I believe they're making, uh, they're making progress, uh, again and, and, and pushing out. But another thing that occurred is there's a major forest fire raging in Ukraine right now that stopped the Russian offensive, even though they've, uh, broken through the, um, the defensive position in the North. Um, they can't advance because the forest is on fire. And so, you know, the Ukrainians have this, uh, natural, uh, defense thing going on. Um, I don't think they planned it. I just think, you know, part of war is, you use high explosive, and when you have dry uh, brush and for trees, they catch on fire. So there's a major forest fire raging out of control in Ukraine that's slowing down the Russian offensive in the north. What are the Ukrainians trying to get? You know, we 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 do know that Russia has limited manpower. They um you know they they came into this war with two hundred thousand, um, and you know whatever their casualty rate is, I think it's lower than what the Ukrainians are saying. But the bottom line is. Um, there is attrition. You know, you know, equipment gets attrited, manpower gets tired, et cetera. And there's there's only so much Russia can do, uh, and, and Russia's trying to do it, and they're succeeding. What the Ukrainians want to do is similar to what the Russians did against the Germans um, in, in, in 1941, the Battle of Moscow, is you just start throwing troops in. Boom, throwing them in, throwing them in, throwing them in. And you take the losses, but you slow the Russians down. You bleed the Russians. That's their goal is to uh, bleed the Russians so that the Russian offensive stalls. And the second the Russian offensive stalls, then the U- Ukrainians believe they can reestablish the line and then use uh, time to rebuild a military capability using the weapons provided by the West that would give them the ability to counterattack. I think they live in a fantasy world, but you ask me what, what is the Ukrainian strategy? I think that's their strategy right now is to trade um, – manpower uh for for time um and and to get the russian offensive to stall and then to be able to build up a uh, a new military uh, that's capable of launching um you know effective counterattacks that's their that's their strategy um i think the russians are being very effective in their use of uh precision strike munitions throughout the rear area to destroy these weapons as they come in i think the ukrainians um, have a problem in that um, the people in the West don't want to die in the East. I think the Ukrainian people know full well the absolute horrific cost this war has uh, brought to the to to Ukraine in terms of dead soldiers. And um, I think you're starting to see the mothers, the sisters, the daughters of Ukrainian service members being sent east uh, rise up and and, and protest. Um, you know, so the, I, I don't think the Ukraine strategy is going to succeed, but I do believe that that's what their strategy is, to basically trade lives for time. Yeah. Scott, let's, last thing here, let's talk a little bit about Mother's Day weekend in Ukraine, because they got a lot of big name people to go out there this weekend. Um, the actor Volodymyr Zelensky, who, you know, is, I guess, now the president or he's playing the president. He got big names like First Lady Jill Biden to hang out on Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. He got you 2 to perform Mother's Day weekend there. Bono and The Edge were there. We got Justin Trudeau also in town. So he got some big names to come out for Mother's Day weekend. What kind of message is he trying to send here? I mean, if they're under siege, is now the time to have concerts and and do, you know, art therapy or something with the kids? Well, I think what we're looking at here is that uh, the Ukrainians are trying to create a counter-narrative to Victory Day. Victory Day was on the 9th. That's Putin's big day. That's Russia's big day. Um, And, you know, let's be honest. The Russians are using the Victory Day celebration as, uh, 
for propaganda, internal propaganda to gin up patriotic spirit, etc. Um, and Patriotic Day used to, or uh, Victory Day used to be a big day in uh, in Ukraine. It still is for the Russian speakers, and um, and and it still resonates with a lot of older Ukrainians who remember. I mean, you know, the one of the reasons why people aren't supporting the. Uh, Zelensky, the way he, he he wants them to, is not everybody buys into this ultra-nationalist vision of uh, Stepan Bandera. Um, many Ukrainians look back and remember that they were on the right side during World War II, that uh, they, they, they did help defeat uh, you know Nazi Germany, that Ukrainians were a major part of that. Ukraine was a major battlefield. Um, and so, you know, there there's this underlying sentiment that... Uh, you know, we need to be celebrating this victory day as well. And so I think what um, Zelensky and company were doing is creating an alternative, a, 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 you know, an alternative narrative based around Mother's Day to create, to divert attention away from, um, from victory day and, and such. So that's what I think this was going on. Very interesting. Scott, I want to thank you for this. Always appreciate your commentary on this voice of reason. Scott Ritter. Um, he's a former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. You can follow Scott. Well, I don't think you're on Twitter anymore. Or are you, Scott? No, I'm banned. Okay, you're banned. <laughs> you're banned. Okay, fair enough. You and a lot of people. Garland just sent an email the other day saying he got banned from Facebook. And this is after his ban from Twitter. You guys need to make duplicate dupe uh, accounts and say, not Scott Ritter. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, not the real Scott Ritter. Uh, but Scott, thank you, my man. I appreciate it. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Eight o'clock hour. Stand by. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner. I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the victim... Vic- <laughs> you victim of Veritas. I, well, yeah, the victim of Veritas is the American people. I'm the vixen of Veritas. The thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Oh, we love Scott Ritter appearances. Yes. Voice of truth. He's so confident. In what well, he's saying. He knows his stuff. He knows it, right? He's, he's been, you know, he was a, a not I wouldn't say a part of the deep state, but he had to work with with the people these unelected officials in the deep state for a yeah. very long time. So he knows how this stuff works. And you know, I it had it he had it in my brain talking about, you know, RFE. Yeah. And and yes, the the victims here is is Veritas. The victim here is truth. Yes. And truth is not getting out here in America, whereas RFE, Radio Free Europe, was literally a creation of the CIA to yes. fight the Cold War, yes. to broadcast American propaganda in the Soviet Union, which nobody ever stopped putting on air. It's like <laughs> Stalin didn't take it down. <laughs> right. Like uh, Uncle Joe. At the time, he was Uncle Joe. I mean, no, literally no, nobody took it down. Like Boris Yeltsin didn't take it down. <laughs> Mikhail Gorbachev didn't take it down. RFE, and certainly now, Vladimir Putin, not taking it down. Oh, yeah. Medvedev, people forget Medvedev was the president. That's right. But none of those presidents got rid of it. Ever got rid of RFE 
And I'm not saying that RT is comparable, but in this argument, it's pretty much the same thing, right? Yeah. But we we here in the U.S., we're, oh, we love our free speech. We love it so much, we're going to give it the Disinformation Governance Board, and we're going to shut down all these voices that we don't like because we love American speech. It's so ludicrous on its face. Like, the idea that a country has a First Amendment and they're coming out with a ministry of truth is just, it's a parody of itself. It's a parody of itself. Right. The DGB. DGB. Disinformation Governance Board. And, of course, you have the media shilling for it, right? So they'll come out and be like, hey, this sounds like a great idea. Why wouldn't we want a board for this stuff? They put me in the mind of those those people in Hunger Games, the press, with the yes, fancy yes, hair yes. and stuff like that. And they're always backing up the government line. I would wager that if you ask those people, just like Chuck Todd, we're independent. We're independent. We I just totally end up on the government line myself. constantly. Yeah, I totally think for myself, Jamaral. I mean, that's really yeah. what he would say. And, totally. But it's like, okay, it's, what are the talking points today, sir? Yeah. That's really what it is. And if you get Ukraine says this, okay, this has to be true. Well, I mean, Ukraine says this. Zelensky said it, so it has to be it's true. It's the gospel. Yeah. And so when you get that constantly, it's like, come on, these people have to know that they're putting this out. I don't buy stupidity for this. I don't buy it. There's no way. We're at the point where it's like Zelensky is Moses and he came down the hill talking about some burning bush and he's got these tablets in his arms and he's like, well, this is what the tablets say. Yep. This is the word of God. So, I mean... You gotta report that. America, you must say this. As the word of God. It's, it's ridiculous. And that's just where And the stuff doesn't even make sense. Look, propaganda is a part of war in general, right? It just, it is what it is, what it is, what it is. It's just something that comes along with it. Yep. Whether the media reports it as if this is true information, it's secondary to that point. I expect governments to lie. I expect the Ukrainian government to lie about what's taking place. We killed 30,000 Russian fighters. That's what we did. I mean, 30 million. 30 million. Yeah, that's what we did. Okay, so fair enough. I get them doing that. I even get Biden coming out and lying. You know, Russia's moving troops. Russia went to China for weapons. Where Russia did this. I get that. I get that. I even get this notion that the U.S. gets a benefit or a bonus out of destroying and gutting the European economy and making them more reliant on us as this goes. I get it. These are the things that governments do when they're looking out for their own self-interest. Media is not supposed to be independent of government. Full stop. It is not. You're it supposed is to be the antagonist. The antagonist. You're supposed to be the arbiter of truth. The thorn in the side. The integrity. You're not supposed to be besties. No, not the in government. the least. Sitting there at a press thing, clapping, patting yourself on the back. We've done great work. We've done great work. Didn't you do great work? Didn't you do great work? Yes. And then pat each other, right? Yeah. On well, the behind. Whereas the American public is like, job. these guys are the worst people ever. Looking at the polling over the course of the last several here, decades, it's astonishing. Whether or, not, whether or not I agree with what Joe Biden's propaganda is, or if you want to call it Vladimir Putin's propaganda, or Volodymyr Zelensky's propaganda, or Joseph Burrell's propaganda, right? because I believe in free speech, I believe they all have the right to say it, and we all have the right to hear it if we damn well please, right. because we are adults, and we can decide for ourselves what makes sense. So we can believe who we wish. They they can say what they want, and that's up to you to decipher what the truth is or what reality is. Not scary poppins at the DGB. Oh, that is far too Pollyannish, Manila. And the problem is that it's that last part. 
it is up for us to decide what's more likely to be true. Oh, that's a problem. That's a problem. Well, that's why the DGB is coming Exactly. Up. She's exactly. going to help us. In the old days, you had mainstream media that would report a very specific narrative. And you may get a right flavor, a left flavor, but at the very least, same narrative. Well, you get all of this new internet products. You get all of the social media. You get all of these channels where people can give their own take. Some of it is ludicrous. Some of it is more accurate than not. But all of it puts people in a mindset that may end up with a rationalization of the world that is not in line with the narrative that they want to prescribe. And so it becomes like, all right, well, that's a problem. We can't allow these people to take a point of view and a tenor that we don't particularly like. We got to do something about that. That's an emergency. I just thought of a a perfect analogy. Hmm. We are we were children of the 80s, right? Yes. You and I both. You remember what the cereal aisle used to look like at the grocery store in the 80s? On sugar, basically. I mean, I mean, you had like five, six different cereals. Like Cheerios and then sugar. Right. There's like <laughs> right. five or six. There's like kicks and Cheerios and then everything else was sugar. Yeah. But it was like, it, it really fit, you know, like arms, arms length, mm-hmm. like most grocery store aisles. You go to the grocery store aisle today for cereal. It's literally the whole damn aisle, yes. top to bottom, yep. right? You can go from Kashi to Kicks to whatever. So you can go from cardboard box, mm-hmm. chips, <laughs> cardboard chips, to the most sugary thing, you know, like, I don't know, cookie crisp, yeah. I guess. I haven't bought 99.9% sugar right. with a grain of... But there's literally a whole aisle yeah. to choose from. That's what happened with the media and... You shouldn't have a government that tells you you should only eat kashi. That's, That's right. good for you. It's whole grain. It'll help with all the fiber in your system to help keep you regular. Don't need the government to tell you that. They're not even doing that. Like, well, I, I mean, know, they're not even doing that much. Because kashi is actually good for exactly. you. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're not even doing it that. Taste Their good. objective okay. is not that kashi is good for you. Their objective is, okay, we right. need you to, let's say, eat these Fruit here's Loops. The, here's the government and, brand Fruit Loops. Yeah, here's the government brand Fruit Loops. And it is 11 Light. It has all sorts of fiber. It is little sugar when really ton of sugar, zero fiber. Right. Like it's that, but which like, is the problem. You can't choose any of the other cereals. Yeah. The cereal aisle just got shrunk down in the U.S. to like less than the 1980s. It's like, here's the government brand. Mm-hmm. This is all we will, will allow you. Yep. All these other brands, ignore them. We're not putting them on the shelves anymore. So you can forget about your choice. It's very specific and it is obscene. This is where we're at. Liberal democracy. Cereal aisle reduction. Eliminating sources not of information. Not even healthy. Yeah. It's not even healthy. Right, right. It's not even healthy. <laughs> it's not even healthy. It tastes like cardboard. It's colorful. Full of sugar. Full of sugar. Don't even know what's in it. They don't even tell you the ingredients. That's what we're looking at now. Let's get to the news. That's unfortunate. And she's right. I like that analogy. That analogy works. Um, in the headlines, in the news, in national news, Republican House lawmaker James Comer has announced plans to launch a probe into the scandal surrounding Hunter Biden in order to determine whether his father, President Joe Biden, knew about his reportedly shady schemes. Comer looks to get to the bottom of the matter if Republicans win back control of the House and he becomes head of the House Committee for Oversight and Reform. Preliminary polls currently taken by the taken place on the GOP in position to seize control of the House in November's midterm election. Biden's approval rating has dropped recently due to raging inflation and other issues. A new poll conducted by CBS News and YouGov showed that 58% of U.S. adults favor making abortion legal. This poll was conducted days after the leak revealed that the U.S. Supreme Court was mulling the possibility of overturning Roe v. Wade. In international news, Russian ambassador to Poland, Sergei Adrev, was 
attacked and doused with red paint while trying to lay a wreath on a wow of cemetery of a Soviet soldier in Warsaw, a Sputnik correspondent reports. Adriv arrived at the memorial cemetery on Soviet soldiers in Polish capital, accompanied by diplomats and his wife. However, people who had gathered in advance on the territory of the cemetery blocked his path, shouting insults, slogans, insulting slogans. They began to pour red substance on the ambassador and the people accompanying him. The ambassador could not lay a reef on the cemetery as he had left the place accompanied by local police after the attack. This is Victory Day after all. This should be a world commemoration, not necessarily something specific to Russia. I still do not understand why it is not a world commemoration considering it took the world to defeat the Nazis, even though Russia gave the lion's share of that effort. The notion, uh, let's keep going. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell has proposed seizing frozen Russian exchange reserves and using them to cover the cost of rebuilding Ukraine once the military conflict is over. Well, they've already stolen the money now. They're basically saying, let's just make it complete. He believes the previous experience in Afghanistan serves as a template for such a measure. In an interview with FT, this is Financial Times, published on Monday, Burrell said that in February, U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order to, quote, to help enable certain U.S.-based assets belonging to Afghanistan Central Bank, the Afghanistan Bank, to be used to benefit the Afghan people, unquote. In Burrell's opinion, quote, it is full of logic, unquote, to use Russia assets for similar purposes. Are you insane? So you have the people of Afghanistan dying on the streets from starvation based on U.S. policy, and Biden decides to steal $9 billion that is supposed to belong to the Afghan government. The Afghan government in this very specific case is the Taliban, who won by kicking the U.S. out of the country when the rest of the country didn't support the United States and it basically collapsed. The U.S.-backed regime collapsed. Biden's response, because he didn't want to deal with the politics of giving the money back to the rightful government of Afghanistan, was to basically steal $9 billion. If Afghans died on the streets, starving to death, Burrell, the bright spot that he is, and I'm saying that entirely sarcastically because I think he's completely incompetent, comes out and says, this is full of logic. This is full of logic. And we're going to use the same example that have allowed the Afghanis to die on the streets from starvation as a policy position having something to do with Ukraine. Are you insane? You've already stolen $300 billion. And your response now is, hey, let's just steal it, keep it, and use it to beef up Ukraine at the end of a war. Something that basically we, meaning Burrell, who himself admitted that he created a mistake by offering Ukraine membership into Ukraine. They provoked this war. These people are clowns. These people are full of clowns and are parodies of themselves when they come out saying stupid stuff like this. If you're going to steal the money, steal the money. Don't act like there's a logic to it or that you're doing it out of some kind of good ends. You are on the wrong side of history on this. Let's keep going. Head of Russia's um, Russian Roskomos State Corporation, Dmitry Roginson, has warned SpaceX CEO Elon Musk that he will be held accountable eventually for allegedly supplying Starlink internet terminals to the Ukrainian military. Rose uh, Ragazin said that according to Russian intelligence obtained from a captured commander of the 36th Ukrainian Marine Brigade, the U.S. Pentagon delivered the Starlink terminals directly to Ukraine's armed forces. It was later distributed to the troops in Mirapol, including the fighters of the neo-Nazi battalion 
Azov. Quote, Elon Musk is thus involved in supplying the fascist forces in Ukraine with military communications. For that, Elon, you will be held accountable no matter how hard you play fool. Well, Rogozin wrote in his Telegram channel. Elon can't catch a break. <laughs> he can't catch a break. In Earth and Science News, scientists from U.S. Dementia Research Institute at the University of Cambridge had discovered that certain kinds of stress, like high body temperature, can reverse the abnormal buildup of proteins in the brain that is usually found in patients with dementia, according to a study published in Nature Communications. This phenomenon cites earlier research which showed that people who frequently use saunas in Finland were less likely to experience dementia. Scientists have warned that the study, funded in part by Alzheimer's Society, is in its early stages. Heat shock, which affects abnormal protein aggregations, can also cause brain cell killing stress, the study says. Researchers are now looking for ways to provoke a similar reaction in the body or in the brain without the harmful consequences. It's very interesting. The people that I met from Finland basically gave me the impression that spa or saunas are basically a culture and that many of them have these saunas attached to their houses. So it's very interesting to hear that basically there is a less or let's say there's a reduced chance of Alzheimer's at people who basically use these saunas in this way. Very, very interesting. This day in history, in 1386, Treaty of Windsor between Portugal and England, the oldest diplomatic alliance in the world, still in force. In 1865, President Andrew Johnson issued a proclamation of declaring armed resistance in the South is virtually at an end. This is commonly accepted as the end date to the American Civil War. In 1901, the first Australian Parliament opens in Melbourne. In 1941, British intelligence at Bletchley Park breaks the German spy codes after capturing the Enigma machine aboard the weather ship Muchen. In 1945, World War II, the Soviet Union marks Victory Day. Victory Day. Hence the speeches and the parades and everything else that are taking place in Moscow. In 1960, the U.S. becomes the first country to legalize the birth control pill. Proud day. <laughs> Very proud day. In 2016, historic win in Malaysia general election by opposition coalition Pakistan Arpan, led by 92-year-old former Prime Minister Dr. Mahithir bin Mohammed. Yeah, Mohammed is just spelled weird way. Defeating Prime Minister Najib Razak and ending 61 years of rule by Bariz. What is this? Nasinion Coalition. Oh, these names. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. All right, so let's do this. Let's get to our guests. We have Scotty Dale Hughes waiting. Always a great guest and a regular at this point. Neb. Oh, I'm sorry, Neb. That's right. Thank you. Scotty is going to be at 915. Scotty is at 915. Oh, this is Neboisha Malich. Neboisha Malich. Exactly. So let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm sitting here with Jamal Thomas. I'm Manila Chan. Uh, we're about to bring in one of our newly favorite minted guests. Right? Favorite. He's, he's a new favorite. If you like him as a favorite, 
I like him as one of my favorites. Go he's with certainly it. one of my favorite co-workers. Uh, he's a senior writer at RT.com. Our friend Naboisha Malich is on the line. Hey, Neb. You there, Neb? Can you hear me okay? There's there you Neb. are. There you are, Neb. It is it is victory day. I miss seeing you wearing your your orange and it's almost black. It's quite it's like a dark brownish black color stripe. How would you describe that victory day uh pendant that you always wore? Um well the the St. George's uh ribbon, it's the uh it's the black and orange uh ribbon, yeah, that uh um people have been wearing for oh about a decade now, I think, uh as a symbol of victory day in in Russia and beyond. Uh, which is the um, the ribbon of the Victory Medal from 1945, um, which was again named after a Tsarist medal from before the the Medal of Saint George, uh, the Dragon Slayer, who is happens to be the patron saint of Moscow, the famous you know, Christian knight who slew the dragon that was uh, besieging a city, I believe, in Libya or Syria. Uh, one of those. The, the legend isn't quite clear, but. There was a dragon involved. Interesting. The history goes back further than I thought. I thought this was just the colors they chose for after World War II, and I had no idea that it went that far back. But I digress. The whole reason for wearing those ribbons is to commemorate the 27-some-odd million Soviet lives that spanned, we should count, as far as, you know, West Asia, all the way into Europe that were part of the Soviet bloc, 27 million people who lost their lives in World War II. And now it's funny that, it's not funny, it's sad, that people in the U.S. are kind of um, poo-pooing the idea of Victory Day. It's like, buddy, we would all be speaking German right now if it weren't for the Soviets. Pretty much. Um, I was, uh, I've, I've been writing for years about this whole phenomenon of erasure of history. There was a this horrifying poll from France um, about five or six years ago that I first saw. It was showing, you know, what the French thought right after the war, who was the most responsible for victory, and what they thought circa 2000 or so, and basically decades of um, what I can only describe as brainwashing um, persuaded the French that, you know, the Soviets weren't even fighting. And that it was all, you know, kudos and, and, and credit where it's due to people who stormed the beaches in Normandy. But, you know, they were being told, and so was the rest of the Western world, that that was the effort that, that defeated the Nazis. And it wasn't. It's the way it's taught here, in a weird way. Well, I yeah, mean, when yeah. we're growing up, we don't hear no, no, the, no, the Soviet contribution of 27 million um, I mean, men. Literally or, 10 times that of the Allies. Literally yeah. 10 times. And I think what— Not even close. I, I think what— you learn in school here in America because I know I know you went to to school um, in the former Yugoslavia, but here here in the U.S. it seems like they teach you about the victory on uh, the beaches of Normandy or whatever, and it seems almost implied that the losses suffered by the Soviets, the people, the number that of people that died were actually you know killed by Stalin himself. Mm. versus them actually dying at war. Right. Well, there's this there's this whole attempt of, you know, to say, oh, well, you know, and, and the Soviets somehow managed to beat the Germans because we sent them all of our weapons. And despite the fact that Stalin was killing them while Hitler was waging war against them, and uh, that is just, I, I cannot really spare words to qualify this as an insult because it is an insult. It, it's, it's just a complete rubbishing of history. Uh, again, 
massive credit where it's due to people who stormed the beaches of Normandy and, and fought in France. But at the same time, how many people in the West have heard of Operation Bagration, which is the Soviet operation that defeated an entire German army group that was about 10 times the size that was happening at the same time in present-day Poland? And it's virtually unknown because, again, you know, there's this tendency for Hollywood to write history, uh, which has done, which is done the United States and its allies a great disservice. I'm just going to come out and say it because, uh, you know, this is the kind of Instagram filtering of history that has the same function as, as um, you know, people prettying themselves up on social media, whereas in reality, things are completely different. And, um, you know, this is, and, and I'm hearing all these takes about how this is a celebration of Russian nationalism now and how, you know, Putin has weaponized memory. No, 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 no. There, I mean, again. If, and it's the reality to the history, right? Right, because, again, the reason this whole immortal regiment thing that takes place after the military parade that so many Western governments are allergic to consists, it was, it was a, um, a self-initiated, um, you know, people did it by themselves. It wasn't a government initiative at, uh, at start. And they basically started carrying the pictures of their ancestors who fought. Wow. And some, many of them died in the war. And the, the idea is to preserve their memory forever and also point out that each family, because most Russian families have lost somebody in the war. Um, the numbers are so staggering that it basically had to touch almost every Russian absolutely, on some level. Absolutely. And it was fought on their territory for, you know, the majority of the, and for the better part until, yeah, until about 1944, it was fought on their territory. Yes. And, and we should note that it's not just the Russians of the borders that we know today as, as Russia. We should note that on, it was in Berlin on the 2nd of May, 1945, that a man who looked like, like me, he could be my uncle, a man called uh, Rakim Zan, I'm say, correct me if I'm saying all these names wrong, but he's a, I believe he's a, a Kazakh national, which was also part of then the Soviet Union. Um, mm -hmm. Rakim Zan Koshkarbayev. He's the one who planted the Soviet flag on the German Reichstag in Berlin. Interesting. He looked like me. Interesting. He didn't look like Neb. Yeah. Those iconic pictures yes. of the flag being raised over top of Berlin. The man, oh, man. The man yeah. that raised the Soviet flag on the Reichstag looked like me. So for, for anyone to say, oh, this is just the Russians or whatever. No, we're talking about people. Soviets, Asia, most of Russia today. <laughs> I don't mean, no pun intended. Uh, but the borders of Russia today. The majority, like, of the borders of Russia actually fall on the Asian continent. So much of the Soviet fighters that died looked like somebody that could have been one of my family members. So this is not like a racial thing. This is not a border thing of Russia proper. This was a huge undertaking by people. I mean, it was transcontinental fighting the Nazis. It wasn't just, yay, America. 27 million Soviets died. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's something that, you know, again, between the war being on their home soil and so many people perishing because um, the Nazi invaders had this policy of scorched earth and, and absolute genocide of, you know, basically killing all of the, the, the civilian population to, quote, make room. Um, 
you know, between those two and and the the fighting itself, what, you know, because most of those twenty seven million were about two thirds, I believe, were civilians. Yes, I mean, because they would go into an area and then they would have basically the SS come behind in order to pacify and, of course, send people to concentration camps. I mean, and and when you're reading Beaver's books on this, and not just Beaver books, there's books going into um, the German way of war and all of this other stuff. It gives you this disastrous picture of, of, and it's hard to kind of fathom for people who either weren't there or doesn't really pay attention to the notion of war. I mean, the Germans would come into areas, like you said, take pretty much anything, send people off to camps. Anybody was fair game to be killed. I mean, and oftentimes there would be reprisals. If, if you know, one German gets killed, they kill a hundred um, in response. I mean, it was disastrous and disgusting stuff especially the levels that the militaries were basically fighting on, because if you know that they are not taking um, um, hostages and the only thing that is basically taking place at this point is you're either going to stand or you're going to die, what type of war is that? It's, it's total war. It's total war. And it is, it is unfathomable from the standpoint of our framing of what war is. And yet this is the war that these guys fought in order to basically push back the Nazis. From your take on it. Right, and this is why this is why the Russian understanding of war is existential because it tends to be fought on their doorstep or at their in, inside their house, whereas most of the wars that um, most of the wars that the West has fought over the past hundred fifty years, uh, you mentioned another uh, remarkable anniversary today, um, tended to be elsewhere. Overseas, far away, expeditionary, and so this is this is influences the perception of war, not so much in Europe. I, I would imagine that they would have remembered it better, but no, I guess not. Politics trumps that. But yeah, it's 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 really quite a quite a window into um, people's mental state and and collective um, memory, and 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 the character shaped by it when you consider these historical events, this is why most people tend to not. I'm curious, from your standpoint, how is it connected to today? Like if you're looking at Victory Day today and you're looking at the events that are basically taking place in Ukraine today, is there a connection between these two things? Absolutely. And there's a connection, however people tend to slice it. I mean, you you have President Putin spelling it out that, you know, this is, he says this is the same fight that, you know, in, in 1945, his ancestors, uh, you know, his parents and, and, and that generation defeated Nazi Germany. And yet here's Nazism in, you know, places like Ukraine uh, rising up from the ashes and, and claiming, you know, claiming to be back. And you have outfits like Azov and, and you have, you know, people waving swastika banners and, and the, you know, the Black Sun and all this other crap. And you have the collective West that had once been allies with the Soviet people in their effort to defeat Nazi Germany saying, oh, no, 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 this is fine. This is fine. These are good Democrats now or whatever. And he's condemning that at the same time, paying tribute to that ge the greatest generation in the West that jointly defeated Hitler's Germany with the Soviet Union. And then you have people in Ukraine who are, you know, like the, the president of the government are saying, no, no, this is really the Europe day. And this is the day where the European family of nations is marking their real victory. And I'm going, dude, the European family of nations is the phrase Nazis use in their propaganda posters. Do you even know what you're saying? You know, that kind of thing. And then you have this, you know, uh, in, in Western Europe, in NATO countries, you have the victory reassigned to 
you know, May 8th, which was the local time in Berlin when the capitulation signed, May 9th was Moscow time, which is why it's celebrated on, on that day in Russia. And and they renamed this Europe Day because on one hand, it's a little, on one hand, it would, it would, it would be really awkward to have the Germans, who are basically the premier power of the EU right now, not that any of it matters because they always do whatever Washington tells them, but that's a different topic. But it would be awkward to have the Germans, you know, celebrate their defeat. And at the same time, they should be because it was a defeat of Nazi ideology that sought to remove them wholesale from the civilized world and, and you know, throw them back into this idiotic neo-pagan belief system that they had dreamed up to justify their lust for power. I mean, Germans, first of all, should be should be grateful that Nazism was defeated because it made them into monsters. And some are still. But you have this, what seems to me like a concerted effort to whitewash this war, to, to describe it differently, to give credit to people who didn't deserve as much of it, to amnesty people who didn't deserve it at all, and to deny credit to people who, again, as we've mentioned, you know, sacrificed 27 million lives in the course of this, this struggle and bore the brunt of it to defeat Nazi ideology, not just Germany as the country aggressor, but the whole ideology underpinning this, this total war of extermination. And they're just being denied this, and so obviously they're suspicious and, and resentful and hurt in the best of circumstances they would be. And, you know, now when they see that this ideology has, they regard this ideology as having returned with the full backing of people who used to be their allies, right now a neighboring country, but that once was fraternal and part of the Soviet Union, no less, is just, you know, this, you need to understand this to understand what's going on. So um, one of the things that took place in the war, Stalin had this belief that Western powers basically weren't helping out up until the point where they were about to take Berlin, in which case, all of a sudden, all of the Western powers comes in to help. Meaning the belief that during the war itself, that they were basically letting the Russians and the Germans kill each other up until the point where the West could come in. Do you think that's true? Do you think there's a reality to that? I mean, certainly you could kind of see that working where it seems as if trying to get them to open up another front and everything else in the context of the war. And I know this may be getting into the weeds of it all. I'm just curious on your take on these kind of events that are well, taking place. Well, let, let, let me throw this in there, Neb. We know now because of declassified, you know, time spans are usually about 50 years. We know now that President Truman at the time was waiting to get involved because they were will the U.S. government was waiting to see who was going to annihilate who, and then they'll go in and help the underdog. Right. So if that means if the Nazis were getting annihilated, they would have gone in to help the Nazis. But at the time, there was a brief period of time where the Nazis were advancing, and and the the Russians weren't really getting that involved. And this is where Vladimir Putin's speech today highlighted that was that Stalin made a mistake in that he waited too long and got backstabbed by the Nazis. That's why the U.S. got involved, because it was actually shown, yeah, it was actually shown that the Nazis, the agreement was between Stalin and the Nazis of non-aggression. Right. But then the Nazis backstabbed Stalin right, and attacked 
the Russia or Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union. But Stalin always knew that was going to happen. He just well, needed he figured, a time frame. Yeah. But he, well, but the thing was, he kind of waited. And, and today, Vladimir Putin's speech today actually pointed that out as we're not going to make the same mistakes that Stalin made in waiting for them to attack us first. So, <laughs> okay. That's where we're at now. And that's, yeah, that's a fair point to make. Um, you, Truman actually uh, said, uh, there is a quote attributed to him, uh, and I, I, will, I will paraphrase it because I don't remember if off the top of my head exactly, but he, it was a, he uh, was a senator at the time, not the president quite yet, when he said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all for letting the Nazis and the, and the communists bleed each other yep. to death. Yep. Um, but then he later became president, and as president, he had to oversee uh, FDR's war plan, exactly. such as it was. But um, and from what I've been able to ascertain, it was the Americans who were pushing more aggressively for landing in Europe and uh, uh, op- starting operations. Uh, at, they they um, were in 1942 already had a presence uh, in the British Islands and were preparing, you know, Eisenhower was advocating for landing in in France uh, much, much sooner. But again, you have 1942, the Germans are still advancing. Stalingrad doesn't happen until the end of the year. They don't surrender until February. Um, You know, you don't have the big uh, victories in North Africa uh, until later. It's it's basically as if the landing in Normandy was waiting for for the war to to turn course before it was attempted. You have other operations. You have landings in North Africa. You have landings in Italy. All of this is very roundabout. It seemed to be partly useless, partly, you know, why do you go to Italy when your objective is the heart of the enemy? How do you justify that? And there were all these conspiracy theories about how Churchill really wanted to prolong the war and secure the British Empire and, and you know, let the Soviets bleed out and, you know, fight the Nazis till the last man. And then he can just swoop back in victoriously. And, of course, now we know that after victory, there was a proposal, a British proposal called Operation Unthinkable, to basically rearm the German prisoners of war and launch a war against the Soviet Union. And fortunately, somebody somewhere said this is insane and stopped it. Speaking Because, of So this. we didn't have you know, the extension of World War II turned into World War III. But there was definitely a reservoir of ill will among the Western allies towards their Soviet allies. And today we have this combination of trying to minimize the Soviet war effort on one hand and on the other, trying to explain it with this whole lend lease. Oh, we sent, you know, 80% of our weapons, uh, you know, U.S. sent $50 billion worth of dollars, uh, money at the time to the allies. And people like, oh, it went, all went to the Soviet Union. Well, no, a, about 20% of it did. The, the vast majority went to Great Britain. So, you know, and when you when you consider the British um, <laughs> objective uh, contribution to the war effort in terms of fighting, that's a that's a pretty disproportionate share, you know, considering what the Soviets were able to do with with the, with that equipment comparatively. And again, there the the insistence on the Molotov Ribbentrop, the whole German Soviet non aggression pact in in the modern era is, oh, they agreed to partition Poland and jointly started World War II. That is literally the current official history that I was railing against a couple of years back uh, when the Trump administration advanced this nonsense. And I said, this is stupid. You people are ignorant. Explain you should why be ashamed stupid. of yourself. Yeah, explain why that's stupid. 
because it, it, it does not correspond to history. Uh, yes, there was a Soviet-Russian non-aggression pact, but it took place after the betrayal of Munich. You have the Munich Agreement, which, again, you have American historians always bringing it up whenever it's time to justify their intransigence in some sort of international dispute. Oh, that would be appeasement. Remember Munich. Well, first of all, it's not always 1938. And secondly, you always take the wrong lesson for, from it because uh, the, the, problem, the biggest problem with Munich wasn't necessarily um, appeasement. It was appeasement with somebody else's land. You had the British and the French go to a meeting with Hitler and Mussolini and say, okay, well, we'll give you a portion of Czechoslovakia, and the Czechs weren't even asked. And, and then and another thing that happened uh, as a result of um, the Munich Agreement is that Poland got this disputed territory. It was a small piece of land, but the Polish government actually actively participated in the dismemberment of Czechoslovakia. That's, that's the thing to remember. So you have the Polish government that, that is taking part in the dismemberment of a European country that actually sought security guarantees from the Soviet Union. But the Soviets had no way of helping them because they couldn't send troops. They didn't have a border. And when they offered to send troops, the Poles said, no, nothing doing, because they had, you know, this was still within 20 years of a war they had fought with the Soviet Union. And so there was hostility there. But it was Poland that prevented the Soviet Union from stepping in to save Czechoslovakia from Munich. And all of that gets wiped away because in 19, you know, September 1939, Hitler invades Poland and Britain, which gave Poland security guarantees that it couldn't live up to, um, gets, gets involved in the war and all of a sudden it's official. So the narrative has to be crafted to protect this and, and you lose sight of, you know, who did what where. But you have the betrayal of Munich in which the British and the French partitioned Czechoslovakia to appease Hitler. That is a correct assessment. Poland gets involved in getting a chunk of land, sees the opportunity. The Soviet Union realizes that the West has united against it, which is the Soviets' worst nightmare since 1917, really. And then they open up diplomacy with Hitler and say, okay, well, you know, you, 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 are you interested in an aggression pact? And Germany says, yes, of course, absolutely, because they're, you know, they're liars and never live up to any agreement that they had signed. And this is this is the background of Molotov-Ribbentrop. Um, Stalin, I don't know whether he was expecting an attack. I'm, I'm pretty sure he was expecting an attack eventually. I don't think he was expecting it on June 22nd, 1941. Neb, am I, Neb, am I, am I going too far to compare the chopping up of Poland or Czechoslovakia to comparing it to how Bill Clinton decided to chop up Yugoslavia? In the 90s? Maybe a little bit. I think, <laughs> um, well, I mean, I have to be fair. Um, the, the, the destruction of Yugoslavia was, it definitely occurred in the continuum of this history. And I don't want to ride my favorite hobby horse here because we're off topic, but it's very in indicative that Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union weren't broken up until Germany was reunified, until this key achievement of World War II, the pacification of Germany, had been undone. 
Um, Germany directly played a role in breaking up Yugoslavia and supporting separatism and supporting its World War II allies in that context, which is a shameful episode and doesn't get talked about enough. But you could argue with reason that uh, 1990-91 is the beginning of the reversal of the results of World War II, not just with German reunification, but with the destruction of Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union and all of these border conflicts flaring up. And then NATO gets involved in 1995, so 50 years to today since World War II, gets involved in a conflict outside of its uh, borders. And then, you know, three, four years later, gets involved in another one and starts expanding to the east. And so, yes, you can make an absolute connection between what happened in Yugoslavia and the revisionism of World War II that um, that the Western powers have been doing um, basically since then. Neb, thank you for this. You're always a great source of information. I always say he's a historian, too, but yeah. he always denies that. He that knows this moniker, but he's he's a de facto historian, not only just senior writer at RT.com. Neboisha Malich, thank you. Information. So Neboisha Malich, he is, just to end him nicely, is a Serbian-American journalist, blogger, and translator who wrote for a regular column for Antiwar.com from 2000 to 2015 and is now a senior writer at RT. And yeah, I agree. Historian, close to it. He, he definitely knows this stuff. He denies it. It's like, yeah. Dude, I, you don't have to have a degree. He's like I mean, self-effacing about right? it. It's like, oh, He's no, like, no that me, that me. Yeah. I just read, you know, piles of books about history. <laughs> I'm like, you're a historian. Yeah. He's like, no, I don't have a degree. You don't need a degree in history to be a historian. Yeah. Somebody that just researches and reads and learns and reads and reads, like Neb, yeah. qualifies a his, as a historian when you're like a walking encyclopedia of World War II. Yeah. Because yesterday it was like, we need somebody on Victory Day. It was like, that's Neb. <laughs> that's his Neb. thing. Yeah, that's his thing. So let's do this. Let's take a break. We're coming back and we're going to have a conversation about a story that I find to be massively outrageous with the CDC purchasing cell phone data in order to spy on Americans. This is astonishing. They were doing it, yes, for COVID, but apparently they were supposed to be doing it for other stuff that wasn't related to COVID. COVID just kind of sped up that process. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we have another guest with us, a doctor, John, what is this, Dombrowski? Dombrowski. He is an anesthesiologist in Washington, District of Columbia. He received his medical degree from George Washington University School of Medicine and has been in practice for more than 20 years. He's also CEO and founder of the Washington Pain Clinic. Um, Dr. Dombrowski. Welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm well. Thank you for asking. Thank you. And I'm glad you could join us. And I saw this story that came out in Vice. And just to give the basics of it, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention boy access to location data harvested from tens of millions of phones in the United States to perform analysis of compliance with curfews, track patterns of people visiting K-12 schools, and specifically monitor the effectiveness of policy 
in the Navajo Nation, according to CDC documents obtained by Motherboard. It's this last part. The documents also show that the CDC used COVID-19 as a reason to buy access to the data more quickly. It intended to use it for more general CDC purposes. And this last part, the document revealed the expansive plan the CDC had last year to use the location data from highly controversial data broker, SafeGraph. The company paid CDC paid $420,000 for access to one year of data. And this is apparently includes Peter Thiel and former head of Saudi intelligence among the inventors or the investors. Um, Google banned the company from the Play Store in June. Here's a question. Should the CDC be doing this? Is it within their purview to do this? It's very basic, very straightforward. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily need to be all that complicated. Should the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, be buying data for basically spying purposes in this way? Right. I think by even asking the question, we already have an answer. Of course not. The CDC is all about our health, not monitoring are we good citizens or not. This is a very slippery slope. And I started to, we're starting to see that security state being started. I mean, it really started after 9-11, after a you know, terrible terrorist attack. And again, I was kind of on board with this. Yes, we have to do these pat-downs. We have to do these you know, searches. That's where the FISA court started to come out. And then all of a sudden, you know, we just gave up those, you know, our own individual liberties for our own personal security because of terrorism. Now, fast forward to two years ago, for our own health, do whatever you need to do to keep me safe from a virus that's now the CDC, the FDA has now, you know, considered a flu virus. So we have to, again, it's a whole idea, this is a new security state. I mean, this is crazy talk. I mean, I hear myself talking this way, but how else can you explain it to monitor people? I mean, keeping Indians on a reservation, I think there's a joke in that, for God's sake. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> Dr. Dombrowski, this is, I mean, I feel like more Americans should be outraged that the CDC, who's supposed to be full of doctors that have taken this Hippocratic oath, you know, to do no harm. And you folks in that community are supposed to be there to help us and save us. But I mean, is this really saving us by by intervening into our private lives to track where our phones have been, where we're bumping into each other? Of, oh, oh, that person A had COVID and they bumped into person B, C, D. I mean, I, I, I get why they would want to do that. But at the same time, is there, I mean, is there some sort, I feel like there's some sort of violation of the Hippocratic Oath here. This is where you have public health officials feeling, again, the road to hell was paved with good intention. We're keeping you safe. Really? Are you really? So again, they're not doing this nefariously, but this is power. And once people have access to power and I can track you, I can do these types of things for your own safety. Of course, of course, we're only doing it for your safety. What is the next excuse for our safety? This is where it gets to be a very slippery slope. And obviously, that's why we have the Constitution. Is this even constitutional? I mean, this is where we've had a suspension of the Constitution for two years. We don't have any, there's no constitutional mandate that we have to wear a mask. There's no constitutional mandate where we must take an injection in our body that we're unsure of. There's no, you know, so this is where the state said, you must do this or you will lose your job. You must do this or you will not travel. This became a, you know, a state where this became very totalitarian and very scary. And I think right now the fog is starting to lift from people. Because now the information is coming out. Maybe the state of these vaccines may not be as good as we thought, or the mass may be as good as we thought, or we're having surveillance. So this is a good opportunity to really have these conversations because this is going to happen again. You bet. This feels like an end run around the Constitution. I mean, the way you made the point of it, it's like, well, hey, yeah. should they be doing this in first? Place? Well, they bought this data. 
Well, like we, this we, should note, we should note the CDC is not a legislative body. No, they're not. They're not. And like I said, this wasn't data that was originated from the U.S. government. This was data from a private organization that the CDC basically bought. Other people can buy this, which leads to other questions. Who else gets their hand on the data like this where you're basically tracking the movements? Do you guys know that this same company that Peter Thiel invested in, that also the Saudis invested in? Yeah. I mean, applaud this or not, it is also the same uh, tech company that was able to trace a, a priest into his using grinder. Interesting. Yes. And having um, gay encounters and they wow. outed him and he was forced out and he's in hiding and, you know, so. But just think, if you can track an path, individual you know, like that, what does that that's mean? What, and that's when, that's the scary thing is when they say this is just, just the basic data, just the basic data. The basic data can be carved out into something as particular as this priest and the apps he was using and the people he was engaging with. Yes. And they were able to track him down to whatever church he was at. Look, he was being creepy, but it is kind of creepy that they could do that. And right here is quote, the CDC planned to use their mobility data and services acquired through this acquisition to support non-COVID-19 programmatic areas and public health priorities across the agency, including but not limited to travel to parks and green spaces, physical activity, modes of travel, population migration before, during, and after natural disasters. It reads, also, quote, the mobility data obtained under the contract will be available for the CDC agency-wide use and will support numerous CDC priorities. So basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew we were using this for COVID and a million people died and you gave us, you know, we can create a rationalization for this. But let's be clear. They were doing this even before COVID came into fruition. It just sped up with COVID. They're talking about using this for non-COVID stuff as a means of operation basically going forward. It's massively creepy. And again, should the CDC be doing this? Do we need that? Dr. Dombrowski, does America need that to protect us from ourselves? Right. <laughs> I, I think the question of also answer itself. But again, all these apps are on your phone. Believe you me, those free apps aren't free. They're monetizing you. So the first thing you want to do if you're this concerned about the state is, you know, put down the smartphone, you know, go back to a dumb phone or something like that. I mean, it's almost amazing that, that we can talk that way. But this is where, you know, how does Google know I'm right by a Starbucks? She's I'm thinking about a coffee. Oh, your Starbucks is like 20 feet away from you. So, I mean, this is used, obviously, you know, in a capitalistic society, which is okay. I got that. You know, you're getting the data. Okay. Oh, geez, I see you're interested in golf. Hey, it's great. These are great golf clubs and they feed you these things. So again, they're monetizing you by your interest, by your searches. And this is, this is how they, that's their, that's their platform of making money. But obviously, because you have a GPS system in your phone, this can be drilled down for getting you a cup of coffee, or this can be drilled down to saying, Hey, are you someplace that you shouldn't be? Yeah. They, they can't determine the difference. Now, obviously this has come to, to light. You could have legislation that comes, you know, that comes forth. And again, the internet has been unregulated for the past 30 years. So maybe now there's some time to say, if you do this, you have to tell patients where you have to tell an individual you're being followed, or you can opt out, or you can opt in, or if you pay an extra 20 bucks, you know, we won't follow you. Again, you know, something like that. But I'm sure they're going to be looking into this. Last week, we had a conversation about um, Section 703 and the FISA courts and the FBI admitting to about 3.4 million warrantless searches of people's cell phone data. And that's what they're admitting to, right? So the FBI probably, they say they've only, you know, taken Pegasus as a, as a test run. 
Um, but that is the same software that was used by the Saudis to track uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist. Got deboned. And got, yes, deboned with that awful bone saw. Anyway, my whole point to that is that if the FBI has access to all kinds of stuff like that, and somebody or an entity, we'll say as low as the CDC, has access to this, you can only imagine what the DNI, the, you know, the, the FBI, the CIA, all the other three-letter agencies, what kind of medical data of ours they have access to, doctor. Should we as a society be concerned that these non-medical entities can know our medical information? We, of course, and again, to your point, you know, these FISA courts, again, if they've been lied to, I mean, they, 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 you just can't, you know, supposedly spy on American citizens. So they have to go to a court, okay, we, are, we have these concerns, and we're going to, you know, monitor other people. Okay, fine, I, I understand that. But again, that's if you're being truthful to the court. Now, obviously, there have been a lot of uh, ways that they have not been truthful, so they've lied. So the FBI has lied, and, and, and that's the crime in it of itself. The second thing is, is that you, you can make the argument, oh, well, you know, I'm not doing anything illegal. I don't mind if you track me. This is a very slippery slope because, again, what, what you might think is not illegal, you know, there's an old saying by Stalin, you know, show me the person, I'll show you the crime. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so again, we don't want, from a civil libertarian standpoint, that's why we have the Bill of Rights. You, you have to show a reason that, that, you know, search and seizure, illegal search and seizure. So this is, you know, this is a legal search, basically. You've got to show a reason why you're in my car, in my house, things like that, tracking me. But again, this is the administrative state. We can, they've got this power, again, almost in a um, uh, uh, national socialistic type of thing. So in other words, you've got the government with uber um, private organizations working hand in glove. Well, we can't do that, but they can do that. Oh, Okay. So this is a real problem. So hopefully we're starting to, you know, the scales are falling off our eyes to kind of look at these reasons that we're being tracked. Show me the medical reason, but they can't. So now you're giving other reasons that are very concerning. Yeah, especially during COVID. It's like sometimes there's an emergency and you use an emergency as an excuse to do what you wanted to do anyway. And, and that's this, what happened at 9-11. That's what happened with 9-11. And look, say whatever you will. And look, like you, right? I, I am fine with the vaccination stuff. I'm fine with the mask wearing. I've been pretty aggressive on this notion that states have to do things out of interest. This goes way too far. This seems to be a jump of the shark like nobody's business. Um, Dr. Dombrowski, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate this. Dr. Don, John I'm Dombrowski. sorry, John Dombrowski. He's an anesthesiologist for Washington District of Columbia. He received his medical degree from George Washington University of Medicine and has been in practice for more than 20 years. He's also the CEO and founder of Washington Pain Clinic. You guys Pain are listening. Pain Center. Thank Center. you. Right here in DC. Excellent. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Yeah, I was just telling you, Dr. Dombrowski. He's Love great. that guy. 
He's great. Yeah. Like he used to come on my show on In Question uh-huh. all the time. And he was just, he always, he always had teeth, yeah. had grit, had was not afraid of the system because, as I was telling you off air, it's that he doesn't work for a big clinic, yeah. a big hospital, rather. He's his own boss. His formal agency. See, right. So he is not afraid to speak his mind and his beliefs and stick to his guns. Yeah. And you should... No hedge. You should heed this, folks. The doctors that you encounter at these big hospitals... Yes, most of them have your best interest at heart, most of them. But, but, most of them are also afraid to stand up to do something out of the orthodox protocol. Yes. That could be right for you as an individual, me as an individual. Rather, you know, there's protocol for everything. And a lot of doctors, and this is how that works, and it's all run by big pharma and big insurance companies. So these doctors fear what their overlords have to say. When you get someone like Dr. Dombrowski, it's like, I'm on my own. Tells you exactly what he thinks. He's going to tell you what he thinks and and the reality on the ground. So that's why I've always respected having him on the show, because I know it's it's coming from a place that's not biased by big money. Yeah. He's just giving you his take. This is what I think. I mean, look, most of the doctors I've come across are egomaniacs. Oh, Um, yeah. Oftentimes, they can't deal with them being wrong. Oh, yeah. Um, All sorts of stuff. And even on some level cowardly, especially with the notion of pain medication, like when everything started to change with the pain medication thing, you will have a doctor where you've been getting pain meds for 20 years and it's like, um, I'm uncomfortable with this now. I'm uncomfortable with this because the state is over, is looking over. So it's clear you had an issue. It's clear that that issue has been persistent. Like over prescribing? Well, it's not even over prescribing, especially when you're getting into, I don't know all um, primary care doctors. But I do know that among the primary care doctors that I do know, they start getting very dicey about prescribing narcotics or pain well, medication. Yeah, because of the fentanyl, well, not only fentanyl, but like all the, the yeah. addiction to painkillers exactly. across this country. And the problem is there are people who actually need payments. And so if you as a primary care doctor are like, okay, I'm going to deprive this patient who I've known for all of these right. years, legitimate patient. Look, either it's legitimate or for the last 15, 16 years, You've basically been lying and prescribing a person something that you now believe they didn't need. Which one is well, it? Right. Well, it's a lot of, again, when when these doctors are put between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Working for a big hospital. They're going to look out for their own big, interests. And, and in this case, that means I don't want to prescribe you this medication that I've been prescribing you for 10 to 15 years. So yes. Because it could get me in trouble. It could get me flagged. But then again, there's all these people that cry wolf, too. That is so, true. In this day and age, it's kind of a dicey place for a doctor to be at. Yeah. Um, which is why... I would say history is a defense for cry wolf. Meaning, the cry wolf thing makes sense if a new patient is coming in, you don't know this person from a hole in a wall, etc., and you're uncomfortable with it. Even then, I would say it is your responsibility to do your job. To do your job. Sure. And your job in some cases is, yeah, I need to prescribe pain meds because that is an aspect of my job and responsibility to the patient. Okay, what does that look like, though? Well, you don't want to do that. Well, that person does need the pain med. And you are more concerned and care about, oh, I don't want to be flagged. I don't want them looking right. over my shoulder and I don't want this. That means you're not doing your job anymore. You're doing something else. Well, that's the problem with modern day doctoring, we'll yes. call it, is because it is no longer, it's not the the art of medicine anymore. Where, I would say the state shouldn't be involved. Where, my- where this is, you know, it's independent for each individual person. Then the doctor treats you as an individual because let's say your cancer may be different than that person's cancer. 
even though they're both lung cancer, but they're different, right? There are certain protocols that are set in place by big insurance and big pharma and the doctor's hands are tied and their own insurance, their liability or whatever yeah. insurance that they have to take out in case they get sued. So there's all this, you know, all these insurance companies oh, get involved. they're not worried about insurance companies. They're worried about state. Well, there's that too. All these state. people that will sue them. So the, the business of health has really has really tied the hands of a lot of, of good doctors out there that want to do the work of the Hippocratic Oath and treat the, the individual and treat the problem. And they cannot do that because of the system that we have in place that has has turned human life into commodities to buy and sell and trade. And so there are good doctors out there like Dr. Dombrowski, who is way out on his own, doesn't have to answer to anybody else. Yeah. So I... I can hats off to that guy. Yeah. I don't know him as a doctor um, or as his capabilities or whether he's good at or anything he else. He has great Yelp he's reviews. great <laughs> um, on here, though. And I greatly appreciate it, that refreshing. This is exactly what I think about this yes. moment. Because you I don't get that. a lot of doctors that, that are Not really, like that. He was very right. strong, right. very strong. Because it's a political conversation on some level, right? Yes. Um, and so it's like gets into this thing of like, why on earth are they doing that? That is horrendous. I know. And could just go into it. And yeah, there's something disturbing about that. I mean, the notion that the CDC is basically tracking your whereabouts to determine where you're going. And by the way, again, Do you really take, want Dr. Fauci to know when you, you walk to the bathroom? Fauci doing, knowing that? Like, think about that. Dr. Fauci knows when you go to Starbucks. It's like, you only had one bowel movement this week, buddy. I've been paying attention. We've been watching, using your cell phone data to monitor when you go to the toilet. It's like, do you want that? Is that really what you want? And then you realize- like, Oh, there's Manila walking to 7-Eleven again. Yeah, are you, did you get anything good from there, Manila? Did she get a Slurpee? Did you what get a that? Slurpee? Was it full of sugar? I mean, I because don't- look, this is how this devolves, right? Yes. So they see me go to 7-Eleven. Yes. And by usage of you know, like my pay apps on my phone uh-huh. or whatever. 7-Eleven can, can sell the data. They can sell the data. They know that I bought a Slurpee, right? Let's say 20 years from now in my 60s, I develop diabetes. And they're like, oh, well, we can't insure you. We can't treat that yep. because we saw a history of you going to 7-Eleven yep. every day buying Slurpees. We have this level of percentage that we can tell you did it this often over the course of 10, 15 years right. that had adverse medical consequences and that now, we shouldn't have to pay for now. That's exactly it. And so yep. that's the way insurance companies will be like, oh, we're going to kick you off the insurance you've been paying for the past 40 yes, years. Yes, yes. Because we just got data from 7-Eleven that was sold to us. And by the way, that it, you went there every it wouldn't day even just be 7-Eleven. I mean, or, think or about, wherever, like, you could be on your YouTube channel or your, your website, and an ad will pop up. Hey, would you like to go to this place? Why is that ad popping up? Because they've been monitoring the things that you've been doing online. So we'd say, hey, would you like this? Would you like that? In the same way that the CDC is offering this information, other places could get their hands on this information and that's also. that's terrifying is if, the CDC and Dr. Fauci can figure out the last flatulence you made. <laughs> right. They can that flatulence can follow you for the next 20 years. And then an insurance company, you're young and healthy now, but 20 years from now, right. when you're a senior citizen and the insurance company decides to drop you because they find out the flatulence came from too many hot dogs at 7-Eleven. People need to know how creepy this is and where this goes. This is how this devolves. Yes. And it, I'm joking about it now, but it makes it oh, more Oh, that's palatable. not a joke. That's not a joke. It makes it more I don't think palatable. it's a joke. I mean, I think, I mean, because it's... Fart joke. Yeah, it's a fart joke. Fair <laughs> enough. But you can see the way it's going in a direction. Again, if COVID never happened, the CDC still would have did this. They still were going to do they, this. Exactly. Because this technology is out there. Yes. And they were willing, they were looking into it 
well before COVID happened, and they used COVID as an excuse, as the entryway to go. Oh, we need this. Yep, we need to know. We're trying to help you. We're trying to help you. So we want way, to alert you if, like if you ran DC, into anybody here in DC. If you have to, I mean, you can opt out of it, but the city, the I don't know if it's a don't CDC, they give alerts to something? the local DC government? Yeah, because I've worked in the district for about a decade. They they know I work here. I yeah. had to opt out of this because Muriel Bowser can alert me. If I bumped into, if I was at Starbucks and somebody at Starbucks came down with COVID and we were there at the same time, like you might get, have COVID. I'll get an alert on my phone telling me that Bob I Rob. had an exposure at such and such general vicinity. Yeah. But that, do, do I, I mean, in some ways, is that helpful? I get it, no. but it's creepy. It is I, creepy. I don't need. Even though it is helpful. Yeah. I don't need the office of Muriel Bowser. <laughs> Monitoring your whereabouts and movements. To know yeah. where I've been. It is very I just, creepy. I don't want that. It is very creepy. So, so I agree with the doctor on this. The good yeah, doctor. The good doctor. John, John Dombrowski. Dombrowski. Good All job, right. my man. Let's get to some headlines here in domestic news. Republican House lawmaker James Comer, not Comey, <laughs> has announced plans to launch a probe into the scandal surrounding Hunter Biden and the laptop from hell to determine whether or not Daddy Joe Biden knew about his shady schemes. Comer's looking to get to the bottom of that stuff. If Republicans win back control of the House and becomes the head of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, preliminary polls so far place the GOP in a position to take control of the House following November's midterms, while Biden's approval ratings have dropped recently due to, oh, you know, things like raging inflation and a whole host of other stuff. Then a new poll conducted by CBS News and YouGov shows that 58% of U.S. adults favor keeping abortion legal. The poll was conducted just days after that leak revealed that the U.S. Supreme Court is leaning over on that first draft to overturning the 1973 Roe decision. In international news, the Russian ambassador to Poland, Sergei Andreev, was attacked and doused with some sort of red paint or chemical while trying to lay a wreath at the cemetery of Soviet soldiers in Warsaw, Poland. Andreev arrived at the Memorial Cemetery in the Polish capital, accompanied by some diplomats and his wife. However, there were people there had gathered in advance of his arrival. They blocked his path, shouted insults at him, and then they poured a red substance on the ambassador and his accompanying party. So the ambassador was unable to lay the wreath at that cemetery. He had to leave, obviously accompanied by uh, local law enforcement. Then EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell. Keep in mind, that's his title, okay? Foreign policy chief. He's proposing the idea of seizing frozen Russian foreign exchange reserves to use them to cover the costs of rebuilding Ukraine once this conflict is over. He believes the previous experience in Afghanistan should serve as a template for this measure. I don't know how that's the same when the U.S. went in and dis indiscriminately bombed, carpet bombed the whole damn country. I, I don't, don't know how that's the same thing, but okay. In an interview with the Financial Times published today, Mr. Borrell said that in February, U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order to, quote, help enable certain U.S.-based assets belonging to Afghanistan's central bank, Da Afghanistan Bank, to be used to benefit the Afghan people. Now, in Burrell's opinion, he continued, he says, 
it is full of logic to use Russia's assets for similar purposes. So if he's the guy that makes policy, he's the chief of policy in the EU, it sounds like they might ensconce that into policy very soon. These people are idiots. I mean, you basically have people dying, literally dying on the streets in Afghanistan because the U.S. stole $9 billion from the Afghanistan government. Burrell's take is, well, they're using that for the betterment of Afghanistan as they starve and die on the streets. You're insane. Like, what is he talking about? I mean, yeah. It's like just. Well, yeah. Mind you, this is, the logic doesn't serve, Jamal, because one, taking the money from the Bank of Afghanistan it says it in the name. It's the Bank of Afghanistan. Right. So it's like the Afghani people's money. This is talking about taking somebody else's money to serve another country. $300 billion, so, basically. By Joseph Burrell's logic, the way it should shake out is they should freeze U.S. assets and take that money and go rebuild Afghanistan yeah. because it was the U.S. that destroyed Afghanistan for 20 years. So... Yeah, you giving the Afghanis their money back? Yeah, that makes sense. But if we're applying the same logic that Burrell is using for for Russian money to Ukraine, then if you're implying that the Russians destroyed Ukraine, so we're going to use the Russian money, then who destroyed Afghanistan? The United States did. So are we freezing U.S. assets to go give to the Afghani people, 12 million of them who are starving, half of them who are children under the age of six? So... They should think about that. Then in tech news, head of the Roscosmos uh, Space Corporation, as we know in Russia, Dmitry Rogozin, has warned SpaceX CEO Elon Musk that he will be held accountable eventually for allegedly supplying Starlink internet terminals to the Ukrainian military. Rogozin said that according to Russian intelligence obtained from a captured commander of the 36th Ukrainian Marine Brigade, that the Pentagon delivered Starlink terminals directly to Ukraine's armed forces. It was later distributed to the troops directly in Mariupol, including the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Quote, Elon Musk is thus involved in supplying the fascist forces in Ukraine with military communications. For that, Elon, you will be held accountable no matter how hard you play the fool, Rogozin wrote in his Telegram channel. Now, no, that is not a death threat. We need to <laughs> clarify that. Right. They're talking about holding him, like, in a in court as, you know, supplying, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Combatant, basically a belligerent nation. With Well, not even that. I mean, because Russia calls them nationalists. No, right. Like, they don't even call them part of the Ukrainian Material military. Material support, I think, is the, the actual term. It's It's like if here in the U.S., if... You're somebody that, let's say, supports the Taliban and you supply material support, then it, it could, I don't know what the Russian laws are, but they, they have something similar. So it would basically be applicable there. So no, Elon, it is not a death threat. Chill, bro. Chill with your tweets. In Earth News, scientists from the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Cambridge have discovered that certain kinds of stress like high body temperature, can reverse the abnormal buildup of proteins in the brain that are usually found in patients with dementia. That study is published in Nature Communications. This phenomenon cites earlier research, which shows that people who frequented saunas in Finland were less likely to experience dementia. Scientists have warned that the study 
funded in part by the Alzheimer's Society, is in its very early stages. So no, you don't have to go bake in a sauna just yet. Heat shock, they say, which affects abnormal protein aggregations, can also cause brain cell killing stress. So there's a double-edged sword to this study, folks. Researchers are now looking for a way to provoke a similar reaction in the brain without the harmful consequences of, like, you know, getting heat stroke. And then this day in history, way back in 1386, the Treaty of Windsor between Portugal and England, by the way, the oldest diplomatic alliance in the world that is still in effect today, uh, that thing was signed back in 1386. Then in 1865, President Andrew Johnson issues a proclamation declaring armed resistance in the South is virtually at an end. This is more commonly accepted as the end date of the American Civil War. In 1901, the first Australian parliament opens its doors in Melbourne. In 1941, British intelligence at Bletchley Park breaks German spy codes after capturing Enigma machines aboard the weathership München. Then in 1945, World War II, the Soviet Union marks its victory day. In 1960, the U.S. becomes the first country to legalize the birth control pill. Timely, given the whole SCOTUS leak. Yep. In 2018, historic win in the Malaysian general election by opposition coalition Pakatan Harapan, led by 92-year-old former Prime Minister Dr. Mahathir bin Mohammed, defeating Prime Minister Najib Razak, ending 61 years of rule by the Barisan Nacional Coalition. And that is going to do it for your headlines this Monday, May 9th. You're listening to Fault Lines, Thomas and Chan. You nailed those names. <laughs> you nailed those. I was like, wow, she uh, the, nailed it. The Asian stuff. I, I kind of know a thing or two about Asian stuff. Do you? <laughs> Do you? No. I have an interest in like Asian stuff. Yeah, just random, of course. Total coincidence. Total coincidence. Yeah. But look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, we have Scotty, the hottie, Nell Hughes Woo! coming up. She's joining us. It's not going to be in studio, unfortunately, I but know. she is joining us. Um, we'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. I would agree. I mean, I get that both Ukraine and Russia are major world suppliers in, in the way of like grain and stuff like that. And and obviously oil. We're not talking about that here. Here in the U.S., we don't get most. I mean, for us, I mean, come the November elections, the gas prices aren't. It's not isolated to the Russia problem. Obviously, we're in a global supply chain. Um, but I think the Republicans have a lot they can run on. They can run on, you know, having turned the tap back on, right, as, as one of the arguments um, for uh, the pipelines, all the different pipelines that have been shut off because of various whatever reasons. That's also removes jobs. I think the Republicans have a lot of stuff they can run on in the fall, whereas what do the Democrats have, Scotty? I mean, other than they're angry about Roe, what can the Democrats run on this fall? Manila, we still have, what is it, seven months till Election Day. Let me, um, let, let's not tempt fate at this point, because as we have seen in the past, we still have not had, I, if I, unfortunately, 
my prediction is if we're already having the abortion argument, but that's not going to be able to last to November. Uh, and it's going to be so, it, it's going to go either way pretty soon. Um, we're going to have I guarantee we're going to have a Second Amendment debate. Something unfortunate is going to happen. It's going to be made into a bigger issue. There will be a race debate. That's 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 always guaranteed every election year. Wait, race race, race debate for what? Race color. Race and color. Something is going to come up that is going to polarize our country once again. Because unfortunately, right now, as you pointed out. I think there are many in communities like the Hispanic community, the African-American community right now that don't like paying $4.50 for a gallon of gas, who in California, someone I read where in L.A., $7 a gallon of gas. That right there has a huge effect. And that right there would motivate anybody to look for a change of what's going on. They don't care about social issues right now. They care about the fact that there's no money in their bank account right now to buy food to go on their table. If they can even get the food in the grocery store, especially if you're looking for baby formula right now. Those issues right now are telling people, regardless of how they voted, that what's going on right now is not right. And we need, we need a real dramatic change. And they're going to vote for the other guy. They have to be reminded, unfortunately, this is where, where partisan social issues come into play. Something unfortunately is going to happen, and we're going to have an issue of major debate again about race, which will never have a solution. Not saying that we don't need to have a debate about race relations in America. I guarantee we do, but it's amazing. We have huge issues come up, and we have riots, and we have cities, we have uh, demonstrations, and nothing ever gets solved. No good ever comes from it. There, it, all it allows, it just divides people even more. So, I, unfortunately, that has been the the history in the past. I don't know what it will be, but if you want to play your odds and if you want to look at the past and learn from it, that's usually what happens. And unfortunately, we still have a lot of time between now and November. We do have a lot of time between November, and I appreciate what you are saying. If there's a racial issue that comes up, what I would like it to be basically is based around this notion of needs and priorities. And unfortunately, or fortunately, yes, you know, you can look at the numbers and show that African-Americans and the amount of money that they have saved or the amount of money that they're earning is dramatically less than, let's say, the average white person. There's that. But that also brings up a conversation about the effect of these various sanctions are very having here on the home front and in the various populations, meaning if a conversation comes up. I would love that conversation to be around needs, how much money we're spending, or for that matter, this notion of we got to pay for our values. And what does that mean in real world terms to regular people in this country that don't have $500 in a bank, what, 60% or 70% or whatever that number is, not to mention the people that are barely making ends meet day to day to day, and their lives are getting worse because of the amount, like double the price in regards to gas or 50% increase in the price of food. That stuff has dramatic consequences. And I guess the question becomes, will that have political consequences associated with the Biden administration? Meaning, will the public look at Biden and say, the buck stops with the president? This notion that Putin did it, it's Putin's fault, that that is not necessarily going to fly, even if the public accepts that. And my, my allegory to this or my comparison to this is Donald Trump and COVID, where Trump would say it's the China virus. China is pushing people out of airplanes to infect Americans. They would say all of this insane stuff, right? The public seems to accept on some level, okay, China might have had culpability, but you're the president. And the 500,000 people that died, died on your watch. I suspect this is going to be something similar with the Biden administration. You may get the Biden administration and all of the media coming out with very, very specific narrative about Putin did this. Ukraine should be in our orbit. Ukraine should be the 51st state. Ukraine and Zelensky walk on water. He's the closest thing to Jesus since Jesus. You can have all of that stuff. And you can say all of that stuff. 
By the same token, economics, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. And so when you have people who are saying, I am barely making ends meet, you're giving $30 billion to Ukraine, and my prices are going up to the point that I can't fill up my gas, I can't buy my kid food in the way that I would typically buy my kid food, and that is at your doorstep. You're not doing anything about it. Meaning even if the public accepts on some level that they say, okay, Putin's responsible, but I'm still dealing with this inflation. You are still being involved in Ukraine, and you are not attending to the needs that we have here in this country. Is Biden going to get held responsible for that? I got some breaking news. Go for it. It was Vladimir Putin who le- leaked the SCOTUS draft. <gasps> Just kidding. That is that is fake news, but I'm surprised. Oh, what? I was, I'm, I'm shocked that that I haven't mean, come out. I wouldn't I mean, believe it. we're blaming Vladimir Putin for everything else anyway. I'm going to go ahead and just blame him for the SCOTUS leak. Jump ahead of it. Just, I'm going to get ahead of it. You realize Channel 12 is going to be like... RT or Sputnik said that Putin is responsible. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Confirms. Confirms that Putin is responsible for the SCOTUS leak. That's me. I'm going to put it out there first. (laughs) Make me that meme. Vladimir Putin, SCOTUS leak. He's the leaker. Uh, but this is this is the whole point of you in every place. And and like I said, I feel like we're reliving a drama that we've seen before. Because you look at it, you know, we've been here before. First, it was Blaine Bush. Then it became blame Trump. And it's always blame a Republican from at least the Republican's perspective. Now, I'm not so much in my own little hemisphere that I don't recognize that. I'm sure Democrats, they also say that they get a blame for things often. Of course. That's just a part. That's just a part of the game that unfortunately that we're playing in. But once again, you, we have to we have to look. Do they really want solutions in this or do we still want a blame victim uh, progress to happen. Is that what the storyline is supposed to be? But, you know, Manila, here's the one thing, you know, it's interesting that you bring about this, you know, bring in the Russian thing. At some point, and we started to see it with the coronavirus, it got old. And yes, while well, I like to think that, you know, we've been conditioned from like the hunt from Red October, Hollywood has always made Russia out to be the victim. It's been easy to do. It's an easy thing to do because they don't play. Anybody that interacts with Russians realize that they don't play in the minuscule. They are a bigger picture type of uh, type of population and what they worry about. In this case, uh, it's going to get old. You cannot blame everything on Russia. People are going to go, really? It's kind of like the coronavirus. Everything we did was blame things on the coronavirus. And I will say this, the one good thing about last week that I saw that was really made me happy, um, it made me sad too, uh, was when they came out with the fact that they said this Johnson & Johnson vaccine, oh my gosh, it really is causing blood clots. It really is causing young athletes to have heart attacks and heart conditions, and we're going to stop using it except in an emergency situation. That right there, I think, clued. And they, they, as soon as it got out there, they gave it about a 24-hour news cycle, then they shut it down because they realized the damage they did. Because the next time they try to use a pandemic to shut down everything and use that as a fear tactic and scare tactic, I don't think it will go over well. Because people will remember now that the government forced them to get a vaccine, put the pressure on them to get a vaccine, and it didn't work. The same thing's going to be applied to Russia. The more that they play it and overplay it, if they try to play this for too long, I do think people will go, stop making excuses, take some responsibility. Scotty, let's disambiguate those things, right? Because one of those things makes sense, the other one does not. At the end of the day, you went from the Johnson vaccine to lockdowns and then to Russia. Those things are greatly different. From the standpoint of the Johnson Johnson vaccine, it was already known that there was a potential for the vaccine to have these clots. That was already known. That wasn't something that was shocking. 
I mean, them coming out basically owning up that the Johnson vaccine shouldn't be used. I mean, it only had, what, a 75% um, rating compared to the 90%. I don't know why anybody was using it in the first place. But that was already known. It's the reason why the Johnson vaccine was a lesser. It wasn't mRNA. Yeah, well, right. The J&J is not mRNA. Yeah, it's not an mRNA vaccine. So there's that part. The lockdowns. It was... This is in the context wait, wait, of a... Let's Scott, Scotty's got what? a rebuttal to that. The, the pause on that one. But let me tell you, the Johnson Johnson vaccine actually was very popular because it was the one shot only. So people thought they weren't putting so much in their body. In the beginning, yes. A lot of people did, did get the Johnson Johnson. In fact, for kids, that's what the majority of parents, if they chose, they got the Johnson Johnson because it was only one shot. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you on that. And if we already knew that these blood clots were happening... The people were saying the government still allowed it to go on. The government still allowed counties, county health departments to push it out for free. So I'm going to I'm going to differ on you that the idea that there was blood clots happening, they were they were majorly downplaying them like point one percent is going to get it. You're going to be fine. And, and well, I don't and know about the point one percent. And I also don't know that me, kids were the ones that were pushed. They, used the J&J was pushed along the southern border. So a lot of the the migrants that came across the border and when they got caught or whatever by by ICE, they were they didn't force inoculate. They were given the weaker va- vaccine. They weren't forced, <laughs> but worse. they they did. This was the one that they gave. They were given the one shot. The one shot because I mean, if these people get processed and they go and wait for their court date or whatever, what are the chances they're going to come back for a second shot? Right, not going to happen. So J and J was what was offered to the migrants um, along the southern border. Yeah, um, like I said, I don't know. That this is what they were giving the kids because of the one. I don't know that. And from the standpoint of the, the downplaying, yeah, in the beginning, I would agree with you that it was downplayed. But at a certain point, it became clear that the Johnson vaccine, A, didn't have the efficacy of the other vaccines and seemed to be an issue. It became pretty clear that it was pretty known that it was causing these kind of ailments. I mean, but that's secondary. That's secondary to the point. I guess my point is I would disambiguate those things. I don't think those things are equivalent to one another from the standpoint of blaming Russia, not dealing with your own issues, and all of a sudden the lockdowns. They just seem different to me. So let me, let me do a better job of communicating why I think they have a lot to do with it. Because what it does is the government's allowed to put all of Americans' focus, all of the press's focus on one issue. It's one thing, and meanwhile, everything else, ignore everything else. Try to distract from everything else that's happening and say, but focus on Russia. Make Russia, everything's happening bad because of Russia. Focus on Russia. Same thing. Focus on the virus. Everything is a virus. Make sure, you know, everything that we talk about is a virus. Meanwhile, we have our education collapsing. We have our economy collapsing. We have health care is abysmal in our country right now. Our southern border, everything else. But guess what? Don't talk about all the bad things, other bad things that are happening. I want everybody to be focused on this one issue right here. If we move from issue to issue to issue, major issue, meanwhile, the real things that are affecting everyday lives are basically overwhelmingly being ignored by our politicians in office. And I do believe it's on purpose because they know they've created this problem in this country. And so they want to distract us from that. I mean, like I said, we can talk about Russia and the war over in Ukraine and every who's all involved with it as much as we want. I still have to get in my car right now and go fill it up, and it's going to cost me about $80 to fill up my Jeep. It hurts. Right there. It hurts. It hurts. I mean, I had to fill up the car the other day, and now I'm sitting here like, oh, my God. And I remember my mom making the point of saying, I could only fill my tank up halfway. And if this happened when I was growing up, oh, this would have been disastrous. This would have been completely disastrous. On that point, I do agree with you, Scotty, on that very specific 
narrowed point. <laughs> I do agree with you. Um, I want to get into one another issue. So Judge Spares Klinkamp and Sussman ruling, and I am apoplectic over this. They basically had an investigation into Trump based on a psyop and a conspiracy theory that lasted for years and caused tens of millions of dollars only to come away with the conclusion that, yeah, there's nothing to see here, folks. And you get Democrats who are saying, well, we had to do all of that investigation in order to find that there was nothing to see here. Only they don't accept that there was nothing to see here. And you get Rand Paul, who's basically going into Mayorkas, saying, uh, head of DHS, hey, we can't even agree of what disinformation is. So how on earth are you creating a board for disinformation? My point here is that the judge basically constrained Durham and what Durham wanted to do. Durham wanted to basically expand the case on some level. Right here. The decision issued Saturday afternoon by U.S. District Court Judge Christopher Cooper limits evidence and testimony prosecutors can offer against attorney Michael Sussman, a jury trial that is set to be underway. The ruling spares the Clinton camp or Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee the potential embarrassment of a federal judge finding that they were part of a coordinated effort to level since discredited allegations that candidate Donald Trump or his allies maintained a data link from Trump Tower to Russia's Alpha Bank. The Clinton campaign disseminated that claim and made a broader effort to call out the Trump ties to Russia at a time when U.S. intelligence agency has revealed effort by the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election. The only catch with that is not only have they not shown that in any real terms, there was no link between Trump and Russia. And more importantly, the Clinton campaign was the campaign that was doing that, meaning this was something that the Clinton camp was doing. And this is an Obama judge that Obama put on that basically spared Clinton this level of discovery and this widening of scope in a case that should have its scope widened. What is your take on this? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm greatly aggravated by this. That investigation should have been allowed. Durham should have been allowed to pursue that that much further in regards to figuring out the collections and the links and et cetera associated with this particular issue. We've been engaged in this for years, years. Like we've had this Trump and Russia stuff every day on television. It was the only thing that was on television for years. And now you come to find out that all of it was bupkis and the guy who's doing the investigation, Durham, is basically being blocked from extending the bounds of the investigation to figure out the culpability of the person who was at the head of the campaign? Outrageous. What is your thought, Scotty? I'm outraged, but let me ask you a question. Did you ever think we were ever going to see real justice in this case? The bigger question, do you remember when there was always, you know, uh, do the action, ask forgiveness later? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. That we're playing here. Uh, they accomplished their goal. Because like you said, we spent millions of dollars of investigation hours and it gave the press lots of fodder to, uh, to chew on for the years that Trump was in office. They accomplished their goal. They were able to keep Trump from doing anything productive within the region. Do you play dominoes? I do. Uh, I know how to play. I know how to tip them over. Yeah, I think I might have played once in life. Well, let's go with the tip them over because that's exactly what this is. I 100% now firmly believe that if Trump would have been, if we did not have this Trump collusion cloud over the entire administration that started because of this, we would not be in this conflict today. That the Ukrainians would not be sacrificing their lives for whatever the West is trying to accomplish 
that we would not be in this conflict today if Trump would have been allowed to actually be able to broker, to be involved in that region and broker a peace deal, which Trump always said he would. There was never going to be a better opportunity for peace between Ukraine and Russia than the day that Zelensky was actually elected by the people, because that's what they elected him to do. And yet, the only government that could have from the outside stepped in and been powerful enough to bring everybody to the table and get it working was not allowed because the president of that country was literally demonized and could not touch. It was his Achilles heel, could not touch anything Russian because of what our U.S. Congress was threatening to do. And they ultimately did, which was try to impeach him on that issue. So in this case, this is extremely frustrating, but get who, the Democrats, the Hillary Clinton campaign, and I'm going to even tie this to Biden-Obama, they accomplished their goal of keeping Trump out of that region, and that is why we're in there today. And, and it, it, it's so sad, and it's sickening that the people that are actually on the ground, both Russians and Ukrainians involved in this war, are the ones that are, are having to pay the ultimate price for everything that has failed diplomatically uh, in the West um, at this time. Yeah, I feel like all of that was really a, a weird way to divert from the actual people who were involved in Ukraine, namely Joe Biden and his son, when they're like, they're like, no, it's um, President Trump and Russia. It's always been Russia and now Ukraine. But in reality, it was always the whole time it was Vice President Joe Biden and his son hitching rides to Ukraine and something shady happening there and some shady stuff that's been going on since 2014 that nobody wants to talk about. And have you noticed how what else fell out of the the loop from the mainstream press is what happened to all those bio labs that Victoria Nuland admitted to under oath? Why did we stop talking about them all of a sudden? Where did they all go? Where did they disappear to? I thought they were under threat by the Russians and the Russians might take them and take the whatever, you know, biochemical warfare that's in there. Um, where suddenly crickets? Where is everybody? How come no one's exploring that topic, Scotty? Well, let me say this. The millions, possibly billions of dollars that the corrupt politicians here, and I'm going to keep putting it on the West, that have been able to put through Ukraine uh, in, in the past has nothing compared to the amount that they've been able to put through and pass through and funnel through of American taxpayer dollars in the last two months. It's nothing compared to the amount right now that these that the contractors, the government contractors, the lobbyists, all of those, all of those involved in what we call the great military industrial complex, the money that they have made the past two months. Our economy might be dying, but I guarantee they are living the high life. And that is what, you know, if you want to look at the big, big scheme. So that is why, ultimately, why we were never, ever going to get to the truth about Hillary Clinton and how big the campaign was involved in this Trump collusion uh, story. And now, do I think this was, you know, mastermind from the very beginning I think they knew their end game. I don't know if they knew how they were going to get there. I don't think they could even imagine how perfectly this has all played out for them. And But nobody could strategize what the timeline has been for the past 10 years, especially since 2016. But it's gone perfectly for them how they wish because, like I said, we're where they are, right? what they wanted in the end right now, which is a con- 
conflict between the the largest nuclear superpower, which multiple countries want to see taken down, uh, and Ukraine, which has been the number one front for American taxpayer dollars to the corrupt politicians for over a decade. I still want to know the stuff from the labs in Wuhan, as well as the labs in Ukraine. Why can't I know about biolabs? He's like, you just want to know what's in those labs. I just want to know what's in the labs. Yeah. Scotty, thank you for this. We appreciate this. Always enjoy you coming on to the show. We have Scotty Nell Hughes. I give you one, one more quick thing before you can take out my tag. I want to tell you, I talked to Steve Gill Friday night. I was on our local Fox affiliate. He actually went on air and he said, I have to tell you, that was the most academically challenging inner radio interview I have ever done. He said, they are a very smart group of hosts, but I guarantee their audiences too. So, oh, always appreciate kisses on the ego. On our, very cool. Yeah, Thank Steve Gill was a great Gil. guest. Yeah, he was great when he came on. So he is always welcome. He's always welcome. But Scotty Nail Hughes, she's an American journalist, news anchor, political commentator. She was working for CNN. We during, forgive her for that. Yeah, right, right, right. During the 2016 presidential election, often speaking in support of former President Donald Trump. She joined RT America as a full-time anchor, News Fuse Hughes, in 2018. And of course, unfortunately, RT is no more currently in the U.S., Friends forever. Yeah. Scotty, thank you for joining us. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, we're coming back. We're going to be taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan. Um, we are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. And we're going to start off with Tarif in New Orleans. Tarif, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? Hey, buddy. How y'all doing? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free Jill and Assange. I have two comments. My first comment is dealing with Elon Musk with that tweet he sent out yesterday. You got to clarify, clarify what he's saying because he got enemies in this country too, Daddy. Oh, about killing himself? Yeah, no, not, no. Um, or like someone's after him? Yeah, like because, you know, he, he posted that tweet about the Russians or whatever. And, uh, um, and if something happened to him, then people say, well, it's the Russians. But it could be the deep state because they don't like the fact that um, supposedly that he's buying Twitter and going to allow free speech on there, I think. So... I think it's best thing to clarify that and say, you know, you might have some people in this country don't like, don't like him doing what he's doing. He's wicked people out, you know? Yeah, but Tarif, remember, he's the richest man in the world. He's got a lot of security. He'll be okay. A lot of security. He will be okay. He got food tasters, I'm sure, before he <laughs> right, takes a right. bite of some laced up food. It's like, so, oh, that cake looks good. Like, Sanchez, come here, right there. Taste that first. Taste that, buddy. It's like, all right, he didn't die. All right, give the rest to me. Yeah, I'll take the rest. I'm sure. What, what's the second thing? Second, uh, my second part is dealing with the regime change in, um, in um, Ukraine because it's going and it's going to end up into a re- regime change. I'm, I'm watching things on the internet. Putin, them, I got to make two parts with this. First of all, the longer this war goes, the more it hurts Europe. They're struggling. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. That's obvious at this point. Okay. So in um, Ukraine is definitely struggling. You still got and you got Europeans in the West that's starting to hate Ukraine refugees now. Okay, and you got people starting to wake up in the Western Ukraine 
and I'm getting reports that their husbands not coming back, brothers and sons not coming back. So I'm getting upset, and they're paying for like seven dollars a gallon for um um uh, no seven dollars a liter for uh, petrol for um gasoline. So they're starting to wake up, and they're starting to go to the um army registration places and get into it with the sergeants and officers there. And um, it seems like and if it's gone for the next couple of months, next six months to the end of the year, you might have a um kind of revolution there where you're gonna have people gonna be asking for Zelensky to to step down because they they are really getting upset because the currency is the the very and it's hard to buy potatoes it's hard to plant they they are feeling the pain there too and we're we're going to see regime change of the regime change of the regime change of the regime change for decades to come uh, we got to leave it right there thank you buddy we got to move on to our next caller we have sanchez in southern california in the 562 what's up buddy most definitely hey jamal hey home girl i uh, most gracious day to you i don't know we're running short of time so i wanted to talk about the victory day parade that Red Square in, in Moscow. It was the 77th annual uh, commemorating the victory of the Soviet Union's uh, defeat of the Nazis. And rather than, t- I'm going to stop on the history there because really what I wanted to talk about was give you a review of the technical, the technical aspects. They did an excellent job, but you know what they were doing? It seemed like they were doing a Sergei Eisenstein montage. Remember the old Battleship Potemkin film from 1925? Yeah. So stylistically, it was it was like a Soviet montage theory, and so but they did an excellent job of combining all of these uh, different shots. I mean, the director and the technicians did an amazing job of these things. They must have had like two trucks hooked together with all the video cameras and all of the cameras that they had. And it was all quick edits and quick cuts. So it was quite exciting to watch this. It was intercutting various military gears and vehicles along with crews that were driving. And then shots of gear and metal and things like that. Something that you would, like I said, something that you would see in an old uh, montage. And these techniques that were developed nearly like 100 years ago. So it was just amazing, and it was just uh, very, very interesting to watch something like this. I recognized the technique right away, and so I thought, like, yeah, this is something that I really enjoyed watching. So I'd, I'd go back and watch that again. And I shared that clip with you uh, on the uh, Fault Lines page, Homegirl, you, when you uh, tweeted it earlier. Very cool. I, just, I saw that earlier. Thank you very cool. much. You always have the coolest things to share with us. Our friend Sanchez out in the 562 West Side. Thank you. Brave, ATL. What's going on, Brave? Hey, good morning, guys. I know it's been a minute. Um, been a while, yeah. Welcome back. <laughs> Victory Day. Oh, and apparently the end of the Civil War Day, also, weirdly enough. It wasn't allowed for me to uh, be able to call in, but I have been listening. Um, uh, two, two things really quickly. Um, trying to piggyback in lightly after the conversation you guys were having with Scotty. Um, so recently there was a, um, a the most recent uh, Pfizer uh, data dump. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Naomi Wolf. She's been making the rounds reporting on the, on the most recent data dump within that information uh, that they were trying to hold back, but obviously has to be put up. Um, there's information that, that states that there were never actually any tests done um, in any of the test samples on uh, pregnant women or um, breastfeeding women. There were none. And, and even though uh, a lot of organizations um, were still pushing that, it was, that the vaccine was safe for pregnant women and breastfeeding women, there were no tests done. The only tests they actually did were on pregnant rats out of France, apparently, with no actual tests done. And so what's going on, there are, there are a lot of um, medical uh, problems that are popping up in, uh, in pregnancies because of it. So that, that's, I think that would be something cool you guys could look into, um, possibly doing a uh, segment on. 
And then um, the other thing I, I wanted to comment on, it is rather late, but because obviously it was a, on an epi- a segment from episodes of a few, maybe, maybe like, like a week ago, you guys were talking about police violence and just police in general. Um, I, I have to say that you guys were, uh, if you even remember, I have to say that you guys were both, uh, I agree with you guys uh, both uh, on both of the points you made, but I have to go along with, um, with Manila. I, I personally feel um, that police and all uh, public service members that, that put their lives on the line should uh, should be paid more uh, to include military, to include uh, firemen. They should be paid more. If you look at the salaries, it's not good. But then, and what you would get from that is, well, theoretically, what you would get is a rise in standards. When you consider what, what doctors have to go through or special forces uh, soldiers have to go through to, before they're before they're ready to be com- before they're combat ready, even after being soldiers, that's intense training. And the average police officer does not get that amount of training. So I think that if you if, if those um, that pay was raised, expectation uh, on that job um, uh, qualification for the for whoever's position will be raised as well. And, and I, I'll leave. Thank you, Brave. Solid point, Brave. Um, <laughs> Appreciate that. Malik in D.C. and then yeah. we'll go to Robert in Montana. We'll go to Malik right now. Malik, what's up? Uh, hey guys, yeah, I, uh, you know, I'll uh, have to have to discuss that with Brave off the air. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I don't buy that premise, but but hey, it's, it's his point, right? Well, what's going on, Mallet? Right, absolutely, absolutely. I I, I love and respect Brave. Um, I wanted to, to very quickly touch on the Elon Musk thing, and and I my la- one of my last calls, I, I I said to you guys, you know, with the the history of the U.S. government and its consistency and and always backing uh, the the most uh, treacherous regimes around the world, uh, and you know, it, and. That Elon Musk uh, has uh, several uh, contracts with the federal government, um, and, and obviously he's, uh, you know, he. I would compare him to the uh, industrialists of of the Nazi era uh, that aided uh, that aided the fascists back then, um, and I think that Americans need to take a very hard look and 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 self reflect um, on our government here. And, and, you know, someone like Elon Musk, I, I think, should, uh, hopefully we will all be alive, some of us will be alive at the end of this conflict, and, um, you know, that someone like him should be prosecuted. Oh, I'm grimacing over that's that. Tough. Yeah, yeah that's... We, we should note, Hugo Boss dressed the SS men, and I wouldn't say that, you know, Hugo Boss should be banned today, his clothes, but, you know. Uh, but that's an interesting take. Malik in D.C., thank you. Yeah, that's too strong. Uh, I think that's too strong, Malik. To We're going to have to debate that one day. Robert in Montana. Is this the Robert I think it is? It is. Howdy, y'all, and good morning. Howdy, Robert. What's on your mind? we got about a minute left. Sounds good. I'll uh, go as quick as my slow southern draw will take me. You know, I was just thinking about you know, all this stuff that's going with Russia and what have you, and I think where most Americans are missing the point on this, both you know, uh, normal folks and government both, Russia has, they have an understanding of their history that we don't have here. And because of that, the Russians read. And so they read economic reports. Like I was taking a look at the bond markets this morning. Uh, the 10-year bond is inverted. The average American family right now is living off of credit card debt. And I think the Russians playing a long game with this thing in Ukraine. Like they're not looking to win this thing in, in three weeks. Robert, we're going to have to cut in. I appreciate that. You are right. And I think you are absolutely right. The inversion of the bond market is something we need to pay attention to because it often indicates a recession. But look, I want to thank our um, 
producers. Yeah, our producer, our engineer. engineer. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. I want to thank all of you, all of the callers. All the rumblers. You guys have a great, great day. We'll see you first thing in the morning. Have a good one, Hasta guys. Hasta mañana. Fault lines.